So today, we'll talk about a lot of the November 2020 changes, right? But I'll also, again, focus on integrating multiple disciplines. And as I said yesterday, I will spend time today on some weird pathologies that, you know, you may not find in many resources, but they routinely show up on the exam. Uh, November 2020 changes just means uh, last year, they made a very big shift in the exams, starting around November. Uh, and then, also if you'll be dying, psych and behavioral sciences, right? And again, kind of like yesterday, we'll have 10 minutes at the end of every hour to, to take questions from the audience. Okay, so let's just go ahead and uh, jump right into it. So, the first question talks about, oops, my computer did. there we go. Okay. So the first question talks about a uh, six-month-old male losing motor milestones. Okay, first. Okay. So it talks about a six-month-old male that's losing motor milestones, right? He has, over the last two months, lost the ability to sit, turn over, or crawl. He has also had multiple seizures and does not respond when he's called by his mom. He lives in a small Amish community in Pennsylvania, right? So the thing is, certain geographical associations are actually high yield to know for the test, right? So we see a six-month-old losing motor milestones, right? And we see this mention of the Amish community in Pennsylvania. Whenever you see stuff like this, right, you know, having all these seizures, and those kids tend to have like a mild hearing, actually sometimes a pretty profound hearing loss. If you see this, I want you to think of T-Sachs disease. I want you to think of T-Sachs disease, right? So T-Sachs disease, remember the pathophysiology involves a deficiency of an enzyme known as hexosaminidase. Hexosaminidase A, right? So if you have that deficiency of hexosaminidase A, the thing that will build up, we'll talk about the classic populations in a bit, but the thing that will build up will be GM2 gangliocide. GM2 gangliocide, right? GM2 gangliocide. Right? So, what are the classic people that tend to get this problem on exams? Well, the classic people that tend to get this problem are the Amish of Pennsylvania. That's one group. Another group are the Cajuns of southern Louisiana. Because the MBME knows that people have kind of memorized this whole Ashkenazi Jewish business. So, they're kind of beginning to move away from that. Right? So the Cajuns of southern Louisiana. And then also French Canadians. French Canadians, French Canadians, they also have a high risk, right? Of, I mean, like T-Sax is found pretty commonly in those, uh, in those populations, right? And then also the Ashkenazi Jewish, right? The classic ones that we're all used to, right? So Ashkenazi Jewish, right? And then what's the thing you usually find in the eye for these people? Well, I hope you're saying, oh, divine. We're gonna see those uh, that cherry red spot on the macula, right? Cherry red spot on the macula, right? Because basically the thing is, the because these people have this uh, mutation, right? All these GM two gangliocytes. You see the word gangliocyte, right? It relates to ganglia neuron, right? So it builds up. So basically, the thing that happens is the macula will stand out compared to all the other retinal ganglion cells that are distended with this GM2 ganglioside, right? So that's why you have the J-red spot on the macula. And then, how do we differentiate this from a close-causing, right? So the close-causing, you probably know this, to be Neiman-Pick disease. Neiman-Pick 
fit, right? So a pneumonic disease was the big thing to know here. Remember, in pneumonic disease, you have a deficiency of an enzyme called sphingomyelinase. Sphingomyelinase, right? So you're going to have an increase in sphingomyelin. You're going to have an increase in sphingomyelin, right? So you're going to see an increase in sphingomyelin. And the thing is, sphingomyelinase is an enzyme you don't just find in neurons. We also find it in uh, the macrophages of the reticular endothelial system, so like your liver and your spleen. So because that enzyme is also in those macrophages of your liver and spleen, it's not just neurons that will be affected. Your liver and spleen will also be affected. That's why people that have human peak disease, they tend to have hepatosplenomegaly. That's a key differentiating feature, right, from, from T-Sachs disease, right? And again, typically on histology, they'll tell you that, oh, you're seeing lipid-laden macrophages, lipid-laden macrophages for people that have Neiman-Pick disease. Okay. Now, the second one says progressive vision and hearing loss in a two-year-old female. She was profoundly hypotonic at birth. Physical exam is notable for hepatosplenomegaly, right? And they look at this. Further testing reveals elevated, very long-chain fatty acid levels in her plasma, right? Whenever you see, like, elevations in a person's very long-chain fatty acids, how do you think of a peroxisomal disorder, okay? The classic one you'll see on exams is Zellweger syndrome. Zellweger syndrome, right? Zellweger syndrome is a peroxisomal disorder. Because the thing is, in the peroxisomes, that's where you break down very long chain fatty acids. So that's the battle things, right? Many times your the gene mutation is usually like a PEX. PEX. PEX for peroxisome, right? A PEX gene mutation, right? So you're not able to break down very long chain fatty acids. So they'll build up in the cell. Right? So first you'll have a build up of very long chain fatty acids. And this actually tends to be inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion. Okay? In an autosomal recessive fashion. Okay, now, question three says, we have a five-year-old male. He's brought to the ED with a two-week history of daily morning fevers, okay? He lives on a farm and consumes milk sourced from goats, right? So goat milk. His parents know that he sweats profusely at night. And oftentimes, his pajamas have a foul-smelling odor by morning. He also complains of right knee and left heat pain. Now, we look at his labs, and he has a leukopenia and anemia, right? So we're seeing this kid. This kid seems to have these fevers that come and go, and he has this, like, foul-smelling sweat. If you see this, I want you to think of brucellosis on your exam. Remember, brucellosis many times is also called undulant fever, right? They're called undulant fevers. They're called undulant fevers. So... What is the big thing that could have prevented this person? We'll talk about the treatment in a bit. But how could this person have not gotten brucellosis? Well, they could have pasteurized their milk, right? If you pasteurize your milk, basically heat up your milk, right? And the person does not get in trouble. So for the most part, how are we going to treat this on exams? Well, we're going to treat brucellosis on exams. And I'll just tell you, many of these weird diseases, they respond very well to doxycycline, right? Doxycycline is probably one of the greatest antibiotics known to man, right? So you're going to give that person doxycycline plus rifampin. You're going to give doxycycline plus rifampin, or you can give doxycycline plus an aminoglycoside, you know, something like gentamicin, for example. And that would 
will actually take care of the persons and brucellosis. Now, macrocytic anemia in this goat milk population, and we talked about this yesterday, right, is from a folate deficiency. Because remember, goat milk is very low in folate, right? It's very low in folate. Okay, question four. We have a two-day history of severe abdominal pain. So this is a few long set, right? Myalgias, chills, fevers, and a frontal headache in a sewage worker, right? Sewage worker, sewage worker. Fondoscopic exam is notable for bilateral conjunctival suffusion. Suffusion, right? So their eyes are red. Labs are notable for elevated LFTs and a creatinine of two, right? Again, the MMA knows that people remember all the Hawaii business, right? They're like, oh, Hawaii, Hawaii, leptospirosis, Hawaii, Hawaii, right? So they've decided to, you know, change things up a little, right? So again, a sewage worker potentially has exposure to like urine, right? Of, of animals and stuff. And that's usually how people get how people get leptospirosis, right? So the diagnosis here, this person has leptospirosis, <laughs> right? And again, this is one of those things where they can just call it a spiral heat on your test, right? So how do people usually get this? Well, they usually get this when they've been exposed to animal urine. When they've been exposed to animal urine, right? And for the most part, how do we treat leptospirosis? This is actually pretty easy. You can treat it with doxycycline. Doxy, if you see my doxy, I mean doxycycline, right? But if the person is, you know, you know, for some reason they cannot take doxycycline, you can actually give them a macrolid. A macrolid is also pretty good for the treatment of, of uh, leptospirosis, right? So typically, how are we going to make the diagnosis of this thing? Well, typically we're going to do the ELISA first, right? We're going to try to basically find those leptospira IgM antibodies. Right? So we're going to do the ELISA first. But then, after the ELISA, to confirm the diagnosis, many times you can do dark field microscopy. Because remember, it's a spiral keter, so you can do dark field microscopy. Right? And many times, when you're doing that dark field microscopy, you can even do something called a microscopic agglutination test. Microscopic agglutination <laughs> test. So you basically... You're almost like trying to chelate the organism in a sense, right? Now, what is the most important predictor of poor outcomes? Right? What is the most important predictor of poor outcomes? Well, it's actually if leptospirosis involves the lungs. Once there is lung involvement, you pretty much say bye-bye to the person. Well, not pretty much, but let's just say that this person has like a 50 to 70% risk of dying, right? Once a person has pulmonary leptospirosis, those people are really, really screwed. Okay, right? So long involvement is the most important predictor of poor outcomes. Okay, so let's go into the next one. Where is this? Right. Okay, so question five talks about a 22-year-old male with a non-painful, right, non-itchy circular rash on the upper extremities but has been increasing in size over the last two days, right? He also complains of fevers, chills, and a mild headache. He went hiking with a few friends in Minnesota. On physical exam, the rash is observed to have an especially erythematous center, right? So see this person, this person has a bullseye rash, right? Again, I know some people will be like, oh, divine, this is not Boston. It can be Lyme disease. Then you overthink it and get it wrong, right? But again, the bulk of the question is clearly, clearly showing you Lyme disease. The Minnesota may not completely agree, but the bulk of the question is clearly telling you Lyme disease, right? So this person 
has Lyme disease, right? Again, remember, Lyme disease is caused by Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi, right? And again, this is one of those things where instead of putting the actual bug, we just put the word spirochetes as an answer, right? Again, just to mix things up a little bit, right? So what's the most common cranial nerve affected in people that have Lyme disease? Well, it's going to be cranial nerve 7. Remember, this thing is one of those things that can cause bilateral bell spalls, right? So it can affect your facial nerve. Now, what is the classic cardiac complication of Lyme disease? On MBN exams, I actually want you to think of a person potentially having Lyme myocarditis, right? People can get Lyme myocarditis, right? It can cause Lyme myocarditis. And co-infection, remember that the Borrelia burgdorferi is, you know, is carried by the Ixodes tick, right? It's carried by the Ixodes tick, right? And that Ixodes tick carries other things besides Borrelia, right? It also carries anaplasma. We'll talk about anaplasma in a bit here. So it also carries anaplasma, right? So it carries anaplasma. And in addition to carrying anaplasma, it also carries Babesia. I uploaded the document, by the way, the prisoner just came in. So it carries anaplasma and Babesia, right? So those are the things uh, with uh, co-infection, right? And again, we will talk about anaplasmosis, right? And uh, Babesiosis uh, in, a, in a bit here. So the tick timeline, right? This is something that, again, any resources don't seem to cover very well. It's actually kind of important to know, right? Many times, the tick has to be on you for at least 36 hours for you to get into trouble, right? So if the tick has been on the person for like less than 24 hours, you don't need to treat the person for, for Lyme disease, right? And again, treatment strategies by age, that's pretty easy. If you're greater than eight years old, right? You're gonna get doxycycline, right? But if you're less than eight years old, right? Excuse me? You're gonna get amoxicillin. You can give the person amoxicillin Another drug you may see on exams for Lyme disease is cefuroxin. Cefuroxin is a pretty safe uh, uh, cephalosporin for, for Lyme disease, right? But if a person has like Lyme meningitis or Lyme myocarditis, well, what are you supposed to do for those folks? We don't give them ceftriaxone. Ceftriaxone is the drug of choice. Doxycycline is not going to do sport for those people at that point, right? Now, the thing is, again, standard treatment for Lyme disease, most people is, is uh, tetracycline like doxy, right? So what are you supposed to be careful of right, when you're taking a doxycycline? Well, remember, you need to avoid some exposure. Again, today I'm going to try to integrate multiple concepts into the different questions. Right? So you need to avoid some exposure, right? Because remember, tetracyclines, right, they are associated with photosensitivity, right? They are associated with photosensitivity, right? So you don't want to have sunburns. Uh, so you try to avoid sun exposure when you're on a tetracycline, right? So... How could this person have avoided this thing in the first place, right? Because, you know, if you're going hiking, you can't say, oh, you know what, I don't want to catch lines, so I'm never hiking in my life. No, that's ridiculous. So, on MBN exams, you want to potentially explore the possibility of a DEET, skin repellent, right? Another thing you also want to explore is the potential of the person having, like, clothing that is sprayed with permethrin, right? So, permethrin sprayed clothing. Permethrin sprayed clothing. Okay. Now, question six. This stuff for question six. Probably never heard of it before. It is incredibly high yield to know for your exams, right? 
And this has a very specific, like they don't present it any other way on exempt, right? So let's look at question six. So it says we have a 32-year-old army engineer, right? So a 32-year-old army engineer with a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, is birth to the ED with a two-day history of high fevers, right? Shortness of breath. So this person has a history of diabetes. That's a big thing to know. An altered mental status, okay? He just returned from a military relief mission to file. He participated in teams that helped with rebuilding homes that were flooded during a severe hurricane. On further evaluation, his white count is 2,000, so he has a leukopenia. His blood pressure is really low. And then we're seeing these fluid collections in his brain and in his liver, right? If you see all those things, you see all those things, your diagnosis here, I want you to think of something called melioidosis. Melioidosis. It's actually caused by a kind of bocoderia. It's called bocoderia pseudomalai. Bocoderia pseudomalai, right? So how are you going to spot this on an exam? It's going to be a person that has a history of diabetes. In fact, the biggest risk factor is having a history of diabetes mellitus, right? So be a person that has a history of diabetes, that was exposed to soil and water. That's very high yield to know. Was exposed to soil and water. And then by being exposed to that soil and water, it is contract this organism. And this thing is very, very virulent, right? Very, very virulent. Remember, having diabetes is an immunocompromised state. Diabetes literally makes you immunocompromised. That's why people that have diabetes, they tend to have a very high risk of multiple kinds of infections, right? They tend to have a very high risk of multiple kinds of infections. For the most part, the treatment is not something they really test on exams. But you can usually treat these people with IV ceftazidine. Usually have to do it for like many, 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 many months for these people to, to survive. It's, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> okay, question seven. Uh, I don't know why I wrote 12 here. Sorry about that. So we have a 45-year-old TSC agent on chemotherapy. This person is immunocompromised. I mean, you probably not be taking chemo and be a TSC agent, right? Because, I mean, you're exposed to a constant stream of box from people like, you know, pretty much all the time, right? But for the most part, right, so we see this TSA agent, and, you know, another thing you can use here, I guess, for completeness sake, is Bactrim. You can use Bactrim as well for this, right? So 45-year-old TSA agent on chemotherapy for testicular lymphoma presents with a two-week history of high fevers, malaise, and a seven-pound weight loss. And then you see the labs, right? The white count is 17,000, and it's 70% lymphocyte, right? And a calcium of 12.2. And chest x-ray is shown below, right? And he's asking for the next best step in management. So we're seeing this, we're seeing this person, right? So we see this, it's very classic. You see all these circles, right? Circles, circles, circles. TSA agents, you know, compromise, right? This is going to be miliary TB, right? This person has miliary TB, right? Miliary TB. So remember, for miliary TB, any kind of active TB, you need to put the person on the right regimen, right? Because vitamin D6. So rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, right? Plus vitamin B6, so that they don't get peripheral neuropathy. Now, why would this patient have a sodium of 122, a potassium of 6.7, and a bicarb of 14? But if you kind of put all these things together, you kind of see that this looks like an adrenaline insufficiency picture, right? Because remember, an adrenaline insufficiency, especially a primary adrenaline insufficiency, you're pretty much MDSIN means next best step in management. Yeah, that's the treatment, right? That's the treatment, which is what I talk about here. 
Okay, so let's please hold off on questions until 6.50 Pacific time uh, because it kind of distorts the pen. Okay, right? So see this person, present sodium is low because again, when you have a primary adrenal insufficiency, right? You have an aldosterone deficiency. And again, what is aldosterone's life job, like job description in life, right? It makes you reabsorb sodium, makes you pee potassium and pee protons, right? Reabsorb sodium, pee potassium, pee protons. If you can do that, right? It's going to reabsorb sodium, so you're going to have a hyponatremia. It's not going to pee potassium, so you're going to keep it in your body. You're going to have hyperkalemia, and you're not going to pee protons, so you're going to keep those protons. So those protons will suppress your bicarb. So you have a normal anion gap, metabolic acidosis. More specifically, you have a type 4 RTA, right? So remember that TB, so this person actually has primary adrenal insufficiency. Remember, TB is the most common cause of adrenal insufficiency in the world. Although in the U.S., the most common cause of adrenal insufficiency, as we know, is Addison's, right? Is Addison's. Well, TB is the most common cause of adrenal insufficiency in the world. So they can give you a TSA agent with primary adrenal insufficiency, right? And they're trying to get you to go along the lines of a TB on your test. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next page. Okay, so question eight, right? So question eight talks about high fevers in a rabbit farmer, right? So high fevers in a rabbit farmer, right? So this person works for the rabbits, right? So physical exam is notable for a painful ulcer, right? On his right great toe with prominent superficial inguinal lymphadenopathy, right? So you see a person that works with rabbits, right? It should make you think of tularemia. Right? Remember, tularemia is caused by Francisella. Francisella. So that's an N. Sorry, that's an A. So Francisella tularensis. Francisella tularensis. Right? Francisella tularensis. So you notice this person has an ulcer. Right? Sometimes you may even see them refer to tularemia as ulceroglandular disease on the exam. Tularemia loves, loves, loves to present with ulcers, right? With ulcers, right? Ulcers and prominent lymphadenopathy, right? So how do we treat tularemia on MBMA exams? Well, for the most part, again, doxycycline is completely fine for these people, right? You can use doxycycline, although you can also use an aminoglycoside, right? You can use doxycycline, you can use an aminoglycoside. So what's the bulk that transmits tularemia? Well, don't forget that this is transmitted by the dermacenter tick, right? This is transmitted by the demacentral tick, by the demacentral tick. Now, question nine says fever, low blood pressure, oh, that's not good, skin discrimination, and altered mental status in a woman using superabsorbent tampons, right? I mean, for ladies here that use tampons, they always include this on the package and only this in for like, you know, like two years, right? Yeah. That, that'd be ridiculous, right? Because if you do that, hey, you're kind of asking for toxic shock syndrome, right? Toxic shock syndrome, right? So you're going to ask him for toxic shock syndrome, right? So what are the primary bugs that cause toxic shock syndrome on, on MDMEs, right? It's actually going to be strep pyogenes, right? Rubase strep or staph aureus. So strep pyogenes or staph aureus, right? Now, the thing is, who do you not want to get toxic shock from? It's actually from strep pyogenes. The mortality rate with strep pyogenes toxic shock is 
mortality rate with staph aureus uh, toxic shock is actually 5%, right? It's actually 5%. So what's the pathophysiology? The pathophysiology is that these bugs, they release a toxin. That toxin is called TSST1, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. And when it's released, it actually binds to MHC2, right? And then when it binds to MHC2, right, which we find on those uh, antigen-presenting cells, then you have a big-time release of cytokines. It's usually going to be from macrophages, right? And then the person is just going to have a huge, huge, huge problem on their hands, right? And you basically treat this the way you treat septic shock. We'll talk about septic shock later, later today. Okay. Now, question 10 talks about a 23-year-old female, right? She presents with a two-day history of high fevers, sharpness of breath, malaise, and diffuse myalgias, okay? She adopted a dog as a temporal association, adopted a dog three weeks ago from an animal shelter. Labs are notable for elevated NFTs and a moderate leukocytosis. And then you notice this person has a new murmur, right? This person has a new murmur. This bug loves, loves, loves to cause endocarditis, right? And again, you're also seeing these bilateral interstitial infiltrates, right? If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has Q fever. Q fever, right? And Q fever is caused by Coxiella gonadii. Coxiella gonadii, right? Coxiella gonadii. Now, what's the common cardiac complication of Q fever? Well, the common cardiac complication of Q fever is endocarditis. This thing loves to cause endocarditis. In fact, it's one of those things that cause culture-negative endocarditis, right? Now, how do we treat Coxiella? Easy. We're going to use doxycycline. We treat Coxiella with doxycycline. Now, for question 11, it says hematologic differentiation, right, between anaplasmosis, babesiosis, and ehrlichiosis. This is the bane of many med students' existence. They're like, divine, how do I differentiate between these bugs? Let me teach you a nice party trick. Once you know this, problem solved, right? Ehrlichiosis causes a leukopenia. Your white blood cell count will be low, right? It causes a leukopenia. In fact, many times when people have ehrlichiosis, they will have an opportunistic co-infection. So they can have like candidiasis or something like that, right? So they will have an opportunistic co-infection. So you may see divine. Why does this thing cause a leukopenia? Well, the thing is ehrlichiosis actually has a toxin that inhibits TNF. Inhibits TNF. Literally, if a person has ehrlichiosis, they basically... I essentially almost like taking a TNF in heaven, right? So that's why their white count is, is profoundly suppressed, right? Now, babesiosis, the big thing of babesiosis is that babesiosis tends to cause a hemolytic anemia. It tends to cause a hemolytic anemia, right? Many of us know the Maltese. So notice, it's your white blood cells that go down in ehrlichiosis. But in babesiosis, it's your red blood cells that go down, not your white blood cells, Right? So hemolytic anemia, right? So many of us are probably used to that Maltese cross pattern, right? The Maltese cross pattern on our, on our blood smear, right? Many times if a person has babesiosis, the right answer would be to do a thick and thin blood smear. Just kind of like the way we diagnose malaria as well, right? So you do those thick and thin blood smears, right? Because you need a blood smear to see that Maltese cross pattern, right? So they can, because this thing causes a hemolytic anemia, they can literally give you the person having an increase in their indirect bilirubin, because you're literally 
excluding red blood cells, right? And it can be in a person that was a high crane, like New England or something like that, right? Because remember, you can have a dysiosis co-infection with Lyme disease, right? With Lyme disease. Now, anaplasmosis, the good thing about anaplasmosis is anaplasmosis brings everything down. Anaplasmosis, you're going to get a pancytopenia. You're going to get a pancytopenia with anaplasmosis on MDM exams, right? So it brings down your red cells, your white cells, and your platelets, right? So that's how you tell these things apart on your test. Okay. Now, question 12 says, fever and rash for three days in a 10-year-old male, followed by the onset of petechial bleeding on the wrists and ankles that is now spreading towards the abdomen. He recently returned from a field trip to New Mexico, right? Associated with his geography class, where they explored a few mountains. It's probably not as far as again in the world. Now, labs obtained are notable for a wide count of 2,000, platelets of 50,000, hyponatremia, and elevated LFTs, right? The key finding here is the CMPTKI on around the palms and soles area. But again, notice, just to mess your head up a little bit, instead of bringing it a little closer inwards, right? From the wrists and the ankles, but it's going inwards, right? You see that rash on the extremities is going inwards. That's pretty classic for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? This person has Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? So what is the bug? And I guess what's the bug that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Remember, it's caused by rickettsia rickettsii, right? Rickettsia rickettsii, right? Caused by rickettsia rickettsii, right? So how is it transmitted? Remember, when people have Rocky Mountain spotted fever, it's also transmitted kind of like tularemia by the dermacenter tick. So again, they can easily give you a co-infection question for Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? The dermacenter tick carries tularemia and also Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? So how do you treat everybody? Doesn't matter, less than eight, greater than eight, doesn't matter. Everyone gets doxycycline. The thing is, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, without proper treatment, the mortality is about 100%, right? So you need to treat it. You don't mess around. For those of you that are going into peds, you see a person that has Rocky Mountain spotted fever, don't mess around, right? Give that doxycycline. If not, you don't want to like go home, come back the next morning, and the baby we're taking care of is dead. Right? That will not be awesome at all. Right? So everybody gets doxycycline. Literally, everybody. Even pregnant women, the first line agent for Rocky Mountain spotted fever is doxycycline. Right? Is doxycycline. Is doxycycline. That's very high yield But if you don't see doxycycline as an answer for pregnant women, one other thing you can also consider is chloramphenicol. Chloramphenicol is also a good treatment right? for Rocky Mountain spotted fever in pregnant women. Now, if a person is taking chloramphenicol, that's what I mean by, by this last part. If a person is taking chloramphenicol, you need to monitor the white count, right? Because remember, chloramphenicol can cause a granulocytosis, right? Remember, we talked about this yesterday, right? Chloramphenicol has the ability to cause an agranulocytosis, right? So you need to monitor those people's white count, right? You need to monitor those people's white count. Now, question 13 says, mononucleosis-like syndrome with a negative monospot test, right? So if you see a person, they seem to have like a mononucleosis presentation, but the monospot test is negative, I want you to think of CMV, right? Cytomegalovirus, right? So now, what's the microscopic finding in a person that has CMV? Well, the microscopic finding, you're gonna see that owl's eye nucleus. You're gonna see that owl's eye nucleus, right? Owl's eye nucleus. So how are we gonna treat these people? Well, remember, you gang up on CMV with 
Gan Cyclovir. That's a nice way to remember it, right? You can go on CMV with Gan Cyclovir. Basically, Gan Cyclovir inhibits DNA polymerase, right? So basically, the virus will not be able to replicate, right? The virus will not be able to replicate. Now, this is one of those things, especially on step three, they love to test this. They'll say, oh, what's the, they give a person, a person has CMV, they give them Gan Cyclovir, they're not getting better, right? So obviously, the, the CMV they have is resistant to Gan Cyclovir. So what's the mechanism of resistance? Well, the thing is, if you understand the way CMV works, then you understand the mechanism of resistance. The thing is, I mean, Gan Cyclovir. So for Gan Cyclovir to work, it's a prodrug. It needs to be activated by an enzyme called the UL97 kinase, right? And then it then becomes active. And then that active agent then goes and inhibits DNA polymerase, right? So the mechanism of resistance is if you have a mutation in this UL97 kinase, in UL97 kinase, then you're not going to be able to treat, treat this person's CMV. So how do you treat resistant disease? How do you treat resistant disease? You treat resistant disease with phosconate. Remember, phosconate is a pyrophosphate analog. So it's already phosphorylated. It does not need the kinase, right? So it's very, very effective. Now, what if you have a newborn with CMV, right? What if you have a newborn with CMV? How does it usually present? Well, a newborn with CMV, classically on MBNE exams, right? Classically on MBNE exams, is going to have periventricular calcifications on imaging of the brain, right? You'll have periventricular calcifications, right? They'll have periventricular calcifications, right? And many times they will also have microcephaly. So they'll have a small head, right? And typically they'll have a rash. And they can even have a hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss, right? So those are all things you can see with congenital CMV. Remember, in HIV patients, CMV loves to cause retinitis, right? So if you're seeing eye problems in a HIV patient, we talked about this yesterday, think of CMV retinitis, and then in transplant patients, it loves to cause colitis, right? In transplant patients, CMV loves to cause colitis, right? CMV loves to cause colitis. CMV loves to cause colitis. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on up here. Let's see. All right. Okay. So question 14. So question 14 talks about... A three-week history of severe bone and muscle pain, right? So severe bone and muscle pain, fevers, night sweats, and a productive cough in a building contractor working in Wisconsin, right? Okay. He has spent the last four weeks laying the foundation for a major skyscraper, right? Like a really tall building. Now, KOH prep of a sputum sample shows broad-based body organisms, right? Broad-based body organisms. That's the key word there. They almost always will give you this information in the question. If you see this, I want you to think of a person having blastomycosis. Blastomycosis, right? So how do we treat blastomycosis on Indian exams? Well, it's high to know that this is treated with itraconazole. Itraconazole, right? Again, many times these people will have skin findings, and again, they'll have had some kind of soil exposure, right? And many times they have a lot of problems with their muscles and their bones, right? Many times they tend to have problems with their muscles and their bones. Now, question 15 says, for dinophagia in a patient that was recently started on inhibitor budesonide for asthma, 
right? They love to ask this question. Is there a person, you know, taking inhaled steroids and then they're having swallowing difficulty, right? I want you to think of candidiasis. I want you to think of esophageal, esophageal candidiasis, right? Person has esophageal candidiasis. So how are we going to treat those persons esophageal candidiasis? Well, you can use an oral azo, right? You can use an oral azo. But in addition to that, one other thing you can use is you can use my statin, swish, and swallow. My statin, swish, and swallow, right? Again, all those things are perfectly acceptable, right? Now, how does candida present in the vagina? Well, remember, candida in the vagina, many times, right? The person's vaginal pH, right, is going to be less than or equal to 4.5, right? The vaginal pH is going to be low, right? And then, in addition to that, many times, you're going to find pseudo-hyphae. You're going to find pseudo-hyphae, right, if you do a KOH prep, right? And the classic risk factor here is if a person has recently taken antibiotics, right, or you're a smoker, right? You're recently taken antibiotics or you're a smoker. Those are the people that classically get vaginal candidiasis on MDMA now, how do you prevent oral, can, like oral candidiasis while a patient is in the hospital? How do you prevent them from getting it? Well, on MBM exams, this is like those November 2020 changes, classic question here. They're going to use chlorhexidine mouthwash, right? They're going to use chlorhexidine. You do this a lot in ICUs, right? They're going to use chlorhexidine mouthwash. Now, if a person has invasive candidiasis, what are you supposed to do, right? So the thing is, again... We are actively trying in healthcare to decrease the use of amphotericin B just because of how toxic it is. So the second line agent is amphotericin B. It's amphotericin B. So what's the first line agent? The first line agent actually these drugs called echinocandins. You see the word candin, so candida, echinocandins, right? Basically, echinocandins are the penicillins of antifungal world, right? They are the penicillins. They are cell wall synthesis inhibitors. They inhibit this enzyme called 1,3-beta-glucan synthase. Again, I know some of this may seem like, oh, divine, are they really going to test this? Again, you'll be surprised for those of you that are taking step 2CK, for those of you that are taking step 3, step 3 there's usually going to be about 25 to 30 pharmacology questions, just straight-up drug mechanism of action questions on step 3. Okay, right? So... 1,3-beta-glucan synthase. So what are some of these echinocandins, right? They all end in the word fungin, right? So these are drugs like caspofungin, caspofungin. Another one you may see is mycafungin. So caspofungin, mycafungin. And then another one is anidula fungin. So caspo, mica, and anidula fungin, right? Now, what is the pediatric presentation, right? What's the pediatric presentation of candida? Remember, this is diaper rash, right? Diaper rash, right? Usually shows up in, in kids, right? And the biggest risk factor for that diaper rash is moisture, right? Because kids, they're incontinent of, of urine, right? They literally pee on themselves all the time. Now, what is the oral hypoglycemic agent that increases risk of candida, right? Remember, it's the SGLT2 inhibitors. The SGLT2 inhibitors, right? So remember all these drugs that end in flozin. Right? So canagliflozin, for example, right? Canagliflozin. 
These are drugs that prevent you from reabsorbing glucose in your kidneys. Well, if you're prevented from reabsorbing glucose in your kidneys, you can already begin to see that some potential problems could really arise, right? Because again, you're basically putting glucose in your urine. It's almost like you're organizing daily Thanksgiving, right? For all those bugs. They're going to have a great, great time, right? Causing all these uh, UTIs and like candidiasis, right? In fact, phonies gangrene can be a toxicity that they test on Indian exams with these SGLT2 inhibitors. So again, how do we diagnose, how do we diagnose candida? Remember, again, we're going to do that KOH prep, right? We're going to see the, the, uh, you know, the pseudo, the pseudo hyphen, right? We're going to see the pseudo hyphen. Now, if you see an uncircumcised male and he has a candidal penile infection, what disease are you thinking about? I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person potentially has balanitis, right? Balanitis. That's literally an infection of the glans penis, right? It's an infection of the glans penis. The most common cause usually on exams is candida. And then if you see below the breast, right, remember, that's going to be intertrigo. Intertrigo. Basically, I'm just cataloging all the ways you can see candida tested on your exams, right? Remember, intertrigo usually, right, is going to be in an obese person, right, or a diabetic, right? And you're going to treat it with a topical azole. That's also the same way you treat balanitis, right? A topical azole, right? Also, diaper rash, topical azole. Those things all respond well to topical azoles, right? They respond well to the topical azoles. Now, question 16 talks about a 27-year-old marine that comes to the physician after noticing a lesion of his, on his left hand that has gotten progressively larger. He just returned from a deployment, right, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and together with his unit participated in a deforestation initiative, right? So you're seeing this lesion is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Again, especially when you've been exposed to soil and plants. If you see this, I want you to think of leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis, right? And what's the thing that actually carries leishmani? It's actually the sunfly, right? It's carried by the sunfly. This person right now, what they have is cutaneous leishmaniasis, right? Cutaneous leishmaniasis. So how could they have avoided getting leishmaniasis in the first place? Well, again, you could have used a net that was sprayed with DEET, right? Or insect repellent. Insect repellent. Right? So, how do we treat leishmaniasis on MBN exams? Well, you can actually use one of two things. You can actually use either amphotericin B. Believe it or not, this is one of those disorders where amphotericin B is the drug of choice. You can use liposomal, right? That decreases the toxicity. Liposomal amphotericin B. Or you can also use the drug paromomycin. Remember, we said that paromomycin yesterday was the drug you can use to treat cryptosporidium, right? Now, what are you going to find in the bone marrow? If you're going to do a bone marrow smear, right? Remember, you're going to find Donovan bodies. You're going to find Donovan bodies, right? These are those things that we call amastigotes. Amastigotes, right? Amastigotes. Now, look at this. Unfortunately, these people didn't realize this person had leishmaniasis, right? So, look at this. The patient was given topical mupirocin and told to return if his symptoms did not improve. Uh oh. Two weeks later, he's rushed to the ER with high fevers, a 10-pound weight loss over three days. You lose 10 pounds in three days. You're not actively working out. You're sick, right? That person is probably like close to death, right? And profound abdominal distension with hepatosplenomegaly, 
right? Has a diffuse dark pigmentation of the skin. When people get here, they are basically going to die, right? Some people survive, but these people are basically going to die, right? This person has visceral leishmaniasis. This person has visceral leishmaniasis. But again, as our friends at the NDME love to do, they can give this an alternate name. This is Kalar, I don't know if it's Kalar, Azar, or whatever, right? But that's another name you may see on your exams for visceral leishmaniasis. Okay, question 17. We have a 45-year-old Brazilian male presents with a three-month history of dysphagia. He occasionally regurgitates undigested food 12 to 24 hours after his meal, right? Brazilian, you see this South or Central American relationship here. If you see this, this person has Chagas disease. Chagas disease, right? And what causes Chagas disease? I hope you're saying, oh, the vine is caused by trypanosoma. Trypanosoma cruzia, right? Trypanosoma cruzia. Now, what is the esophageal thing that it causes? Well, it loves to cause a collision, right? If you see a collision, a person with a South American, Central American association, think about uh, the collision from T. cruzia, right? They remember in the heart, again, I remember trypanosoma cruzia is causing big problems, right? It's causing big problems. It also causes a dilated cardiomyopathy. Causes a dilated cardio myopathy, causes a dilated cardiomyopathy, right? And then in the colon, it can make your colon big, right? This is actually something that can cause, believe it or not, it can cause Hirschsprung's disease. It can cause Hirschsprung's, right? And it can also cause toxic megacolon. So remember, we've talked about three things that can cause toxic megacolon between the last two days, right? C. diff, U. C. Now you see trypanosoma cruzia, right? So how do we treat this stuff? Well, we're going to treat this is we can use these drugs, my 40 marks. You can use my 40 marks. Another drug you can also use is this one drug called benzenidazole. Benzenidazole, right? So you can use my 40 marks or benzenidazole, right? Now, acute stage ocular findings, right? So this thing actually may help. Many times they like to give the, the picture of person Chagas disease. And you see like a small like swelling on their eyelid. That's something called the Romana sign. Romana sign, right? You see like a swelling of your eyelids. Pretty classic when you see it on examples. Now, follow-up question here says, Marine, who just returns from the DRC, over time becomes somnolent and progresses to an eventual point. You're just sleeping, 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 and then you, you're never able to wake them up again. If you see that, I want you to think about sleeping sickness. What do you think of sleeping sickness, right? Remember, this is caused by trypanosoma brucia. Trypanosoma brucia, right? And this is carried by the CC fly. The CC fly, right? This is carried by the CC fly, okay? It's carried by the CC fly. Okay, so you have a little time before I take questions. So let me move on up here. Let's see. Okay, so question 18 says, a 59-year-old male is brought to the ED after being found down in, a, in his hotel while on a business meeting. He is apneic and has to be placed on a ventilator. EKG is consistent of pulseless electrical arrest. After multiple attempts, return of spontaneous circulation is achieved. 
MRI of the brain is consistent with global anoxic injury. The patient's primary care physician is called and he mentions that a document was signed three years ago where the patient stated that he was not interested in life-sustaining measures, right? I would like to go peacefully, right? So what is the next best step in management, right? So this person has said they don't want life-sustaining measures, right? So we're going to disconnect them from the ventilator. We're basically going to stop life support, right? So what is this document that this person signed called? Remember, this is a living will. This is a living will, right? Now, a classic alternative to this on MBMEs is actually a medical power of attorney, right? Medical power, medical power of attorney. That's a double T of attorney, right? And, you know, medical power of attorneys are just usually better, right? Because they're very flexible. You can make, like, decisions in real time, right? Because as much as much as you try, you can make every death a decision, right? There will still be some gray areas, right? So medical power of attorney is, is, is pretty is pretty helpful, right? Now, assuming a patient does not have this document or the alternative, right? And no one knows his preferences for care. But what are we supposed to do? Remember, we're supposed to consult the spouse first, right? So we'll consult the spouse first. If the spouse is not around, then you need to try the adult children. Adult children. Right? If you don't see that, then you need to try the parents. Right? If you don't see that, then you need to try the adult siblings. Adult what? Right? Siblings. That's basically the chain of command, right? From who you're to start with first to who you're to go to last. Right? If and none of those people are around, then you know, very close confidants, close friends are people that you can go for. Okay. So let me go ahead and take people's questions and then we'll, we'll go from there. What are the classic MDME scenarios where patient confidentiality should not be honored, right? So what are some classic scenarios where patient confidentiality should not be honored? Well, if you suspect child or elder abuse, you need to do something, right? If you suspect child or elder abuse, you need to do something. And then another classic scenario where you also don't need to honor patient confidentiality is if a patient is suicidal or homicidal, right? If they say they want to kill someone else, right? got to tell someone, you need to report to the authorities, have a duty to warn, right? Another classic one is if they have certain infectious diseases. Again, there are many infectious diseases on this list, but these are the ones you need to know for MBN exams, right? So if you have certain infectious diseases like TB, right? Or you have some kind of like HIV, right? You need to tell the Department of Health, and then the Department of Health will warn the relevant people. Trichomoniasis, right? Trick. Right? And also many of the hepatitis viruses. These are actually all reportable illnesses, right? These are all reportable illnesses. And then the final one is if we see something like a person that is an unsafe automobile driver, we need to tell the DMV so that you can lift the person's license, right? So an unsafe automobile driver. Now question 20 says, prior to declaring a patient brain dead, what must be true of the following? Right? Remember. They must have no brainstem reflexes. All their brainstem reflexes must, must be absent, right? So like their pupillary reflex, their caloric re reflex, all those things should be gone, right? Now, what should be true of their PCO2? Right? Their PCO2 has to actually be greater than 60, right? Because remember, when a person becomes hypercapnic, that can stimulate their respiration. Right? But if a person's PCO2 goes that high and they're still not breathing by on their own, right? That tells you that those people are really dead, right? 
Now, their core body temperature has to be greater than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Has to be greater than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Again, a person cannot be cold and dead. They have to be warmed and dead, right? Because there are many people that, oh, they were cold and they thought they were dead, but then they warmed them up and they were like, oh, well, those people perk back up, right? So people have to be warmed and dead. Now, drug of abuse, again, they must have no drug of abuse on board. Before you can declare them brain dead, because again, drugs of abuse can really like mess up like what you think you're seeing as a physical exam finding. Okay, now question 21 says, during a flight from New York to Hawaii, a 49-year-old male slumps to the ground on his way back from the restroom. He's unresponsive. The flight attendant asks for help overhead, and a gastroenterologist comes to evaluate the patient. Despite multiple attempts at CPR and defibrillation, the patient remains apneic and return of spontaneous circulation, right? Basically, the patient didn't come back, right? So ROSC is not achieved. He's declared dead by EMS after the plane undergoes an emergency landing. The patient's family feels that the physician should have done more to help their loved one and decides to have him sued, right? What is the most appropriate physician response in this scenario? Well, the thing is you're supposed to express empathy with the family, they just lost a loved one. They just literally lost a loved one, right? But what does the MDM expect you to know about the legal ramifications of this case? Right? So what is like the big thing I want you to know here? Well, I want you to remember the Good Samaritan laws, right? So you know people have this fear that, oh, they, like if they say, oh, is there a medical person on board? I mean, many med students are afraid of this stuff. Oh, we need to jump in and save the patient, blah, blah, blah. You can, if anything bad happens to the patient, right? Again, you don't have to, it's not by force, right? But if you try to save someone, right? You try to save someone and the person doesn't make it, right? And then the family says, oh, they will sue you. It's not going to hold up in court, right? Especially in these emergency settings, right? Like on a plane or in, uh, like in the desert or something like that. Like, And the family says, oh, we'll sue you. That case, no judge will even entertain it at all. Okay. So I want you to know about, again, these good Samaritan laws, they apply in these circumstances. more willing to help people in emergency situations. Now, question 22 says, given the following clinical scenarios, what is the most appropriate next best step in management, right? Well, the first one says we have a 49-year-old male is brought to the hospital for an outpatient hernia repair. During the course of the procedure, the physician notices a fungating mass around the terminal ilium that likely represents malignancy, yeah, touch it, right? Man. Well, yeah. this is not an emergency situation, That's right? A... So you're going to close the patient because if you're like, oh, let's go ahead and get a biopsy of the mass. Don't do that, right? You need to close the patient. So you close the patient, right? You obtain consent for that specific mass, right? You obtain consent, right? And then you can take them back for surgery. You can then go and reoperate. Okay. Now, the next one says we have a 14-year-old male. is brought to the ER with a three-hour history of severe headache and a high fever. On physical exam, he has local rigidity. The physician recommends an immediate lumbar puncture and the institution of antibiotic therapy, right? The patient's parents state that according to their tradition, a seven-day wait time is required for rites and absolutions to be performed before any scientific measures are allowed, right? So this is an emergency situation, right? The first scenario I gave you was not an emergency. This is an emergency, right? So if parents are like, uh, you know, don't touch our child, and you know that this child has something that will kill them, like meningitis, they're going to override the parents. 
going to override the parents, right? And you're going to do what is medically indicated. You're going to do what is medically indicated, right? So you're going to override the parents. They're going to do what is medically indicated in that case. Now, next one says a 47-year-old male is brought to the ER with generalized tonic-clonic seizures. He's a non-alcoholic. A decision is made to begin lorazepam therapy. The patient yells at the physician and with Swordsby states, don't come near me. I don't want that evil stuff in my body, right? So what are you supposed to do in this situation? They love to throw this on step two, so you can step three, right? The thing is, do what is medically indicated, right? Basically, this person has altered mental status. Whenever a person has altered mental status, the decisions they communicate to you don't matter, right? Just do what is medically indicated in those circumstances. Whatever they say, just just ignore them, right? Just pretty much ignore them and do what is medically indicated. Do what is medically indicated. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. So the next one says, a 47-year-old male is brought to the hospital by med evac after collapsing on a boat, right? His friends state that he had a severe headache. A few minutes before he collapsed. A non-contrast head CT obtained reveals a lentiform density around the right parietal lobe. This person has a, an epidural hematoma. The neurosurgeon recommends an emergency craniotomy. Multiple attempts at reaching the patient's wife prove to be futile, right? So, again, this is an emergency situation, right? So you need to go ahead and take the patient for the craniotomy, right? Again, whenever there is an emergency situation, Typically, you need to do uh, you need to do what is medically indicated. Again, there are some exceptions to that which we'll talk about shortly. Now, what is the general rule regarding patients that are less than eighteen years old on an MBA exam? Right? What is the general rule? Again, there are some exceptions. We'll talk about that. Right? So, what is the general rule regarding patients that are less than eighteen years old on an MBA exam? Basically, you always need parental consent. Whatever the parents say is what goes for those people, right? You always, always, always need parental consent in these folks. Now, when is parental consent not necessary on MBMEs? When is parental consent not necessary on MBMEs? Well, there are a few classic situations like this on exams. One, again, is if you're dealing with an emergency situation, right? Emergency situation. Another classic one, right, is if we're dealing with issues that relate to reproductive health. Reproductive health, like contraception, stuff like that, right? Contraception, STIs, things like that. You don't need to. You don't need parental consent for that. And then, also, typically, if something revolves around mental health issues, right? So issues of mental health, right? Issues of mental health. Typically, you don't need parental consent for for any of that, right? So issues of mental health, you really don't need parental consent for for any of that. Okay. Now, question 23 says, a nurse mistakenly gives a patient a thousand units of aspart. Oh That's a kind of insulin. Instead of the other 75 units. Yeah. 55 minutes after the dose was given, she notices her mistake and immediately begins an infusion of D5W. A little better than D5. What is the I next D50, best step man. in management? Like D5, so we see this person made a medical error, right? Again, they need to admit. That's not even Right? They need to admit to the error. They basically need to you know, tell the truth. Right? They need to tell the truth. 
You can say, oh, nothing bad happened to the patient, so we can cover it up. No, you can't do that, right? Because if you ever get found out, you're legally culpable, right? So now, what kind of error was committed by the nurse, right? What kind of error was... Sorry, let me adjust my screen. Right? So what kind of error was committed by the nurse in this circumstance? Well, this nurse committed an active... Okay. So this nurse committed an active error, right? Whenever you have an error that is committed, but that is committed by like a frontline healthcare person, that's an active error, right? Like a person in the field, right? That's an active error. Now look at this next one. The Pixis machine at a hospital has an antibiotic rack that includes cefotitan, cefazolin, and cefuroxin placed side by side. What is one potential issue associated with this setup, right? So notice, you see this, cefotitan, cefazolin. They all sound the same, right? This is like an accident waiting to happen. This is what is called a latent error, right? A latent error is basically an accident waiting to happen. You're like, whoa, this is going to end badly, right? An accident waiting to happen, right? So how can we reduce errors of this nature in the emergency medical record? Well, the big thing is to use something called Tallman lettering. You use Tallman lettering, right? So what do I mean by Tallman lettering? Well, if you think about it, let's say you write the drug names as like this, Cephotitan, right? Cephazolin. Cephuroxine, right? You emphasize those parts of the drugs that are different, right? That's what's called Tallman lettering on MBM exams. Now, as an aside, when is it appropriate for a physician to have a sexual relationship with a patient? Never. 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 Yes, there are some gray areas where, like, you know, if you break the therapeutic relationship for more than six months, you can. But on MBM exams, just never do it. And in the real world, never do it. If you do it, I promise you, you're going to have a very short career. Let's just put it that way, right? You're going to practice as a doctor for like a couple of months and then uh, you'll never be able to practice as a doctor again. Okay, so don't do that. Now, next one says, a rural ER with only one physician and nurse are confronted with three patients who all present at the same time. Patient A is a 37-year-old female who has over the past 12 hours had worsening shortness of breath and chest pain. Her blood pressure is 115 over 75 and she has sinus tachycardia, right? This person has a PE, okay? Now, patient B is a 22-year-old varsity athlete who has had chest pain for the past three days and has bilaterally auscultable breath sounds. Blood pressure is fine, heart rate is fine, respiratory rate is fine, right? This person, you know, is okay. Look at patient C, 55-year-old male with chest pain relating to his jaw with territorial ST elevation. This person has an MI. What is the most appropriate physician action in these circumstances, right? They love to test these questions on exams. You see, like, people say, oh, you, we see this soap, we saw this soap note questions on the exam. They love to occasionally throw this in a soap note question, right? So what are you going to do? The thing you're going to do is you're going to see patient C first, because he has the worst thing that can kill, like, pretty quickly, followed by patient A, because person has a PE, followed by patient B, Right? So basically, you're following the principle here of triage. You're following the principle of triage, right? So in taking care of one patient first over the other is an ethical principle being violated, right? 
So if you're taking care of one patient first over the other, are you violating any ethical principle? Well, the answer to that question is no. You're not violating any ethical principle, right? They will try to trick you on the MBM exam into saying that, oh, you're violating the principle of justice. No, triage is not injustice. You're just making very rational use of limited healthcare resources, right? Now, what are the MBM implications for ER care with COVID-19? Well, again, you're going to see the sickest patients first. You're going to see the sickest patients first. That's very high yield to know. You see the people that are the sickest first. Now, MBM implications for healthcare systems with COVID-19, right? Healthcare systems COVID-19, again, they need to stop. So the thing is, since November 2020, right, they're, they're asking all these questions where like, oh, you're supposed to like suggest an intervention for the healthcare system, right? If you see a healthcare system that's been overrun by COVID-19, then that healthcare system needs to stop elective surgeries until the problem is abated, right? You need to stop elective surgeries. Again, many of these things are common sense, but you're very high yield to know for, for exams. Okay, so let me erase this. Because many people, they're like, oh, I've read so-so-so and so in whatever resource, right? But the thing is, being able to apply this to questions, that's the crux of the matter on many of these MBNs. Okay, so I'm going to erase this and move on up. Right. Okay. So question 25, right? So question 25 says, what is the most likely quality improvement concept being emphasized with the following case scenarios, right? What, we, what is the most likely quality impro uh, improvement concept, right? Being emphasized with the following case scenarios. Right? So look at this. A hospital is about to establish a new ICU. They design a project to examine dosing of opioids in the ICU and set up a task force to determine all the steps in this process, along with a detailed analysis of potential pitfalls along the way. So this is the way healthcare should be done, right? This hospital, they are looking, huh, what are all the ways this thing can get problematic? How can we prevent those problems from arising, right? This is something called failure modes and effects analysis. Failure modes and effects analysis, right? So you're basically asking yourself, what are all the ways this thing can go wrong? And let's try to like predict that so that we can, you know, set ourselves up for success from the beginning. Now look at this. A 49-year-old male dies in a hospital ICU from intracranial hemorrhage. He had initially been getting a heparin infusion for a sub, not submissive, sorry, submassive, for a submassive PE. <laughs> the hospital sets up a task force to thoroughly analyze his hospital course and identify factors along the way that may have led to his death, right? So the bad thing has happened. This is not the way to do healthcare. The bad thing has happened, right? Whenever you see this, this is a root cause analysis, right? This is a root cause analysis. So the bad thing has already happened, right? Unlike the first one where the bad thing had not happened yet. And then you go back and look, right? So what? how do you plot these, when you're doing these root cause analysis, how do you plot your diagrams? Remember, you're going to use those fishbone diagrams, which again, many people call these Ishikawa. I believe that's the Japanese term. I think, I think, I'm pretty sure it's a Japanese term. Uh, Ishikawa uh, diagrams, right? So what is the key difference between the nature of the intervention for the two cases above? Well, failure modes and effects analysis is prospective, right? It is first, so failure modes and effects analysis is prospective, right? Which is more ideal? versus root cause analysis that is more retrospective, 
This is obviously a lot less ideal, right? This retrospective is a lot less ideal. Now, question 26 says, what kind of quality measure is being emphasized in the following measured situations in an ICU, right? So what kind of quality measure is being emphasized, right, in the following situations in an ICU? Well, let's look at the first one. First one says, are readmission rates among health fail heart failure patients increasing after measures are implemented to reduce their hospital length of stay, right? So look at this. We're making changes in one part of the healthcare system. We're trying to reduce their length of stay. And we're trying to look at the effects in another part of the healthcare system. We're trying to ask ourselves, oh, because we're reducing the length of stay, are we readmitting these people at a faster rate, right? So you change something somewhere, and then you're looking elsewhere to see what are the effects of that thing. Whenever you see something like this, this is an example of a balanced measure. This is an example of a balanced measure, right? So you're trying to strike a balance. Oh, okay. Using, is there a way I can reduce length of stay in one place and also keep the readmission rates to a minimum, right? You're trying to, it's almost like you're playing a balancing act. That's a balanced measure, right? Next one says, number of adverse drug events after a tall man lettering system is implemented in an ICU, right? So you've implemented a quality improvement process and you're trying to see, oh, what were the outcomes of this thing? Did this thing work, right? This is an example of an outcome measure. Is an example of an outcome measure, right? And then the next one says, number of patients having follow-up appointments scheduled by the discharging nurse after admission for a CHF exacerbation, right? So if you notice, this is a process, right? Like there are many processes that need to happen before a patient leaves the hospital or before a patient gets admitted, right? So you're just checking, oh, did they do this process right, right? Did they do this process right? Did they schedule appointments? Right? So if you're looking at a particular process, this is an example of a process measure. This is an example of a process measure, right? So that's how you differentiate those three kinds of measures. Now, what is a PDSA cycle? Well, the PDSA cycle is basically just people trying to get their names on something for just redesigning the scientific method, right? So what does PDSA stand for? It stands for plan, do, study, act, right? So this is basically a flowchart you follow in implementing quality improvement measures, right? So you're like, okay, we spot this problem. Okay, let's make a plan for fixing this problem. Let's execute said plan, right? That's your do. Let's study the effects of what we just did, right? Oh, did it work, right? So you look at the outcomes, right? You look at the outcome measures, right? And then based on our findings, let's then implement something on a permanent basis. That's what is called the PDSA cycle. Now, what is a forced function? What is a forced function? A forced function is basically something you put in place to prevent people from screwing up, right? So say for example, um, say for example, uh, you can't enter, they say that, oh, you can't enter, uh, uh, you can't admit a patient. Right? Without doing a, let's say if you've not done, if you don't check a box that says you've done your medication reconciliation, or you've not done a medication reconciliation, you can admit the patient. That's an example of a forced function, right? So that's a measure you put in place, right? So that's a measure in place, right? To prevent errors. You're almost like forced to do certain things so that you can prevent medical errors. Now, 
The next question here says, MBME buzzwords for quality and safety practices that improve standardization in healthcare systems, right? So what are some buzzwords that you want to keep in mind, right, for improving standardization in healthcare systems? Well, there's a bunch of these to know for exams. The first one are checklists. Checklists, right? So a checklist, right, is something where, again, like this is something I really, really love, right? I used to use it a lot in ICUs. Um, even when I'm training people that are about to start residency, I do the exact same thing, right? I teach them like some key checklists, like, oh, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do, right? So because by having a checklist, it's almost like you have like a puzzle piece you just need to put together, right? Or like an equation you're essentially plugging yourself into. So you get things done in a standardized fashion and also efficiently as well. Another classic one is a protocol, right? Protocol, right? The thing is many to use protocols for like common disorders, right? So like for like DKA, and many times they use these protocols for common disorders that have complex management, right? Where you have to make many decisions, right? I'm sure many of you have seen this, like a hospital will have like an other set for like DKA patients. They just implement it. Right? Once the patient comes in with DKA, they just have this automatic other set that just puts in all these actions into place. That's a protocol. Again, it's a very good way to standardize things in a healthcare system, right? A third buzzword to remember is an algorithm. Is an algorithm, right? Again, uh, I mean, we're basically using this in this course, right? Like, oh, if you see a question on blunt kidney trauma, this is what you're supposed to do. That's an algorithm, right? So that you have a standardized approach to those questions so you don't get it wrong. And then the final thing I'll mention here is a timeout, right? Is a timeout. We talked about this yesterday, especially before procedures, right? Like, again, if you say, oh, okay, this is the patient's name, the patient's age, patient's sex, this is the side we're doing the surgery on, right? That's a standardization procedure, right? So that, again, it reduces your risk of errors. If you do the same thing, let's say, like, the Coca-Cola company decides to make Coke a different way every time, right? They're going to lose a lot of customers because you're not going to get the same taste every single time, right? That's why, again, being standardized is very important. Now, this next question says, a procedure kit for placing central lines in a major university hospital is found to have three extra lidocaine vials, four extra syringes, and a thermometer. The hospital notices that most of these extra items get thrown away and decides to have the manufacturer create a custom central line kit that contains exactly what is needed. What quality and safety principle is being employed by the hospital in this circumstance, right? This is something called simplification. Now, basically, again, eliminating unnecessary steps in a process that reduces your risk of error, right? If a person only has to do two things to admit somebody versus doing 50 things to admit someone, they're less likely to make errors in those circumstances. Okay, so let's move on to the next page. Again, some of these things may look like mundane things, right? Until you take your exam and then you see many of these persons, you're like, oh, gee, wow, right? So again, I definitely go back and review this because there are things that are easy to understand, but you actually need to like know them on it's testing. Like you're going to see them and you're okay. going to be like, oh, gee, wow. And so so now let's step away from this wow. for a bit and go to something, <laughs> go to something else. Right? Let's mix things up a little bit here, right? So what is the most likely cause of erectile dysfunction given the following patient scenarios, right? So the first one says, for a 9-year-old male, recently started on therapy for angina, right? This is going to be a beta blocker, right? Remember, beta blockers can cause erectile dysfunction, right? Next one says, 32-year-old male recently started on therapy for major depressive disorder, right? 
Remember, SSRIs can cause sexual dysfunction, right? Remember, NDRIs like bupropion, we'll talk about that later today, do not cause sexual dysfunction. Next one says, 23-year-old male recently started on risperidone for auditory hallucinations, right? So this person is taking an antipsychotic. Remember, antipsychotics, we'll talk about this later, but it can cause hyperprolactinemia. It can increase your prolactin, right? Through that tuberal infundibular pathway, we'll talk about this later, right? And prolactin inhibits GnRH. So if you do that, right, your HPG axis doesn't work, so you'll have erectile dysfunction. Now, next one says 29-year-old male with hypomagnesemia, right, megaloblastic anemia, and an elevated GGT. These are three very high yield to know. An elevated GGT. If you see this, I want you to think of an alcoholic. Hmm. Alcoholism, right? It's associated with erectile dysfunction. Now, the next one says we have a 25-year-old male with no relevant past medical history, right, who has nocturnal emissions. So this person, you know, they can see semen on themselves in the morning. But then they are having issues, you know, getting up with, with their with their spouses. Oh if you see this, I want you to think of a psychogenic cause, right? Sometimes they call this performance anxiety. On exams, right? Performance anxiety, right? Now the next one says 47-year-old male with trace proteinuria and decreased sensation in his legs. This is a diabetic, right? Stocking and glove distribution, right? So this person is a diabetic, right? This person has diabetic neuropathy, right? That's causing them, again, to have erectile dysfunction. Okay. Now, this stuff in question 28 is floridly high yield to know. This stuff, I promise you, I is something that they've been caring about very, very recently. Don't ask me how I knew, but they care about it very, very recently. Very recently right? Question 28. A 45-year-old obese male is getting a CT of the abdomen in the ED while being worked up for acute right upper quadrant abdominal pain. Okay. Right, so it's being worked up for acute right upper quadrant abdominal pain. And then look at this. The radiologist incidentally discovers multiple regions of signal hypoattenuation in the liver. The patient does not consume alcohol, and his hepatitis serologies are all negative, save for a positive heavy surface antibody. So this person has been vaccinated, right? So if you're seeing all these like all these like low density signals in the liver, I want you to think about something called NAFO non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, right? So non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic, person doesn't drink, doesn't have hepatitis, right? So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, right? So what are the two different classes of this disorder? Well, there are actually two types. The two types, the first one is NEFL, right? Non-alcoholic fatty liver. So if I write ETOH, I mean alcoholic. So non-alcoholic fatty liver, right? And then the second one is NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And really, the only way you can differentiate these two is by doing a biopsy, right? The biopsy, if you see inflammatory cells, that's NASH. If you don't see inflammatory cells, you're just seeing fat collections. That's NAFO, non-alcoholic fatty liver. So, what is the biggest risk factor for progression of NAFO to cirrhosis? It's actually the histologic subtype. It's actually the histologic subtype. People that have NASH, they have a higher risk of progressing to cirrhosis compared to people that have non-alcoholic fatty liver. Because obviously, if you have an inflammation, inflammatory cells, those can destroy the person's liver. Now, 
how can we reduce the risk of these people progressing to cirrhosis, right? How can we reduce the risk of them progressing to cirrhosis? Sorry, I literally wrote the exact same question here. I'm pretty much answering that question as well. Well, they're going to try to lose weight. Weight loss really helps. And also vitamin E really helps as well. Right? So weight loss and vitamin E. Weight loss and vitamin E. Now, what are the components on MBN exams of the metabolic syndrome? What are the things that you say? You're like, oh, this is the metabolic syndrome, right? Again, remember hypertension. Hypertension is one. Another classic one is if they have increased triglycerides, right? So hypertension, increased, increased triglycerides, low HDL is also part of the criteria, right? Low HDL is literally part of the criteria. And then if the person has increased blood sugar, right? If the person has increased blood sugar. And then another classic one as well is abdominal obesity, right? So abdominal obesity, abdominal obesity. Abdominal obesity. Those are the components of the metabolic syndrome on MBN exams. Okay? Those are the components of the metabolic syndrome on MBN exams. Okay, next one says, how do we manage an RCA infarct? Right? So right coronary artery infarct. Right? Remember, right coronary artery infarct, you manage it just like an MI, right? But one key thing to remember, so we talked about that yesterday, right? But the one key thing to remember is these people should be given IV fluids. Because these people need preload, so you can give them normal sealing. Give them IV fluids, normal saving. Now, next one says, diagnostic tests to be employed in an afebrile female presenting with flank pain radiating to the groin and urinalysis showing 30 to 50 red blood cells to the high power field, right? So we see this person, they have flank pain, is going to the groin, right? Typically, these people will have a kidney stone, right? So the thing is, we're going to do a non-contrast abdominal CT to make the diagnosis, right? Because if you give contrast, that will obscure the stone, right? Sometimes when you see this referred to as a helical CT, right? Both are completely, completely okay. Now the next one says we have a four-year-old male presenting with acute onset testicular pain. Physical exam is notable for a bluish nodularity. This is very high yield to know. Bluish nodularity, right? And tenderness at the upper pole of the right testicle. So what's going on here, right? This bluish nodularity is something called the blue dot sign, right? It's something called the blue dot sign. This is something we find with torsion of the appendix testes. Torsion of the appendix testes, right? Again, you don't need to do anything, just supportive care. You don't need to do any, uh, take them to the OR now, just supportive care. Okay, now question 29 says, given the following case scenarios, right? What is the most likely preventive medicine strategy being employed, right? What is the most likely preventive medicine strategy being employed? So let's look at the first one, right? An 11-year-old boy is required to have meningococcal vaccination prior to beginning high school. Well, you're trying to give them something, right? So they don't develop this problem in the first place, right? This is an example of primary prevention. This is an example of primary prevention. Next one says, a 65-year-old male with a history of PAD is placed on daily aspirin therapy, right? This person has a history of PAD, right? And they're being placed on daily aspirin therapy, right? If you see this, right? So this person, they already have the bad thing, right? We're trying to prevent it from getting worse, right? This is going to be an example of tertiary prevention, right? 
Now, a woman getting her yearly mammogram, right? This is like a screening test. We're trying to, like, oh, if a person has a disease, let's catch it early, right? This is an example of secondary prevention. Whenever you see screenings, screenings are almost always secondary prevention. Vaccines are almost always primary prevention, right? And then look at this. Advising a 35-year-old female with no relevant past medical history against getting a mammogram, right? This person is... You're trying to save these people from themselves, basically, right? They're not supposed to be getting a mammogram at 35, right? This is quaternary prevention. You're preventing overuse or misuse of healthcare resources, right? This is an example of quaternary prevention because, again, imaging does not come without risk. You are being exposed to ionizing radiation, right? So that's how you uh, distinguish those different kinds of, of prevention. Okay, so I'm gonna keep going. Okay, now question 30. Question 30 says, given the following case scenarios, how will these patients be best able to pay for healthcare? So this, this is us talking about Medicare, right? This is us talking about Medicare, right? So first one says, 68-year-old male, So biopsy findings of, again, can we hold off on questions, please? Until the 7.50 Pacific time, it really distorts my writing. Because I'm using like an external tablet to write on the screen. Okay. Okay. So, so please keep so, talking. Question 30 says, uh, given the following case scenarios, right? Given the following case scenarios, how does patients uh, be best able to pay for for healthcare, right? So how are they paying for this healthcare, right? So let's look at this. 68-year-old male, right, spent two weeks in the ICU for the treatment of a severe low bar pneumonia. This is an inpatient visit, right? So what Medicare part is this, right? This is Medicare part A, right? This is Medicare part A, right? This is Medicare part A. So Medicare part A, we use it for inpatient visits on MBME exams. Next one says, same male as above being discharged and needing to pay for outpatient ciprofloxacin therapy, right? Again, you're paying for prescription drugs, D for drugs, this is going to be part D, right? Now, same male as ago, visiting his PCP for outpatient follow-up, right? This is an outpatient visit. This is going to be Medicare part B. Use part B Medicare for outpatient visits, right? Use part B Medicare for outpatient visits, right? Now, who typically qualifies for Medicare, right? Who typically qualifies for Medicare? Again, it's going to be people that are over the age of 65. It's really people over the age of 65 that qualify for, for Medicare. And by the way, Part B also covers diagnostic testing. It also covers diagnostic testing, right? Now, what are some other patient populations that will qualify for this kind of insurance in the case scenario described above? So, so who are some other people that can get Medicare? Who are some other people that can get Medicare? A person has ALS, they have Lou Gehrig's disease. Even if they are less than 65, they also qualify, right? If a person has end-stage renal disease, they also qualify for Medicare, right? And also, if a person has been on social security disability, a person has been on social security disability, right? For more than two years, for at least two years, right? They also qualify for Medicare. Okay. Now, question 31 says, 
A one-week-old newborn is brought to the pediatrician by his mom after she noticed a sweet smell to his urine and earwax. He has also had two seizures since returning home after delivery. He is also not breastfeeding adequately, right? So you see a sweet smell to their secretions, right? If you see this, this is pretty easy, right? This is maple syrup, urine disease, right? Maple syrup, urine disease. Maple syrup apparently is pretty interesting in Canada. I watched a Netflix uh, documentary on how there was this big maple syrup heist back in the day, worth like 18 million dollars. You should start harvesting a maple syrup. Probably come out pretty quick. Okay, but that's a different story. Different story. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I didn't really know about maple syrup until maybe like two years ago. To be honest with you, but it's, it's pretty good. I've tasted some. Okay, so different story. So, what's the pathophysiology? Right. So remember, these people, they have a deficiency of an enzyme called branched chain. And again, I know some of you may be like, oh, there's no way this is straight up on step two, or step three. I wish you all the very best in, in that supposition, right? These things show up on the exam again. Let me tell you this. The MBM is they know that step one is a garbage exam from next generation, right? So what are they doing? They're like, uh, we still need to make these people prepare for these exams and make sure that they have like, you know, some minimum amount of knowledge, right? So they are bringing some step one material to step two CK, right? They're bringing some step one material to step two CK. There are some people that have recently taken the exams that I've worked with that are like, wow, there was a ton of step one material on this exam, right? So that's just something to keep in mind. I'm not saying go and read first day for step one. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? If you can understand many of these basic science things I'm talking about between yesterday and today, you should be in pretty good shape. Okay, so these people, they have trouble breaking down branched chain amino acids, right? So what's the thing causing this problem? You have a deficiency of something called branched chain keto acid dehydrogenase. Branched chain keto acid dehydrogenase, right? Branched chain keto acid dehydrogenase. They have a deficiency of that, right? So they're not able to break down branched chain, branched chain amino acids, right? And an easy way to remember which ones they are, right? Just remember the name Olivia. Just remember Lev, right? So the L stands for leucine. The I stands for isoleucine. And then the V stands for valine, right? Now, how do we treat these people? Right? How do we treat maple syrup urine disease? Again, you're going to give them a diet that is low in these amino acids. You're going to give them a diet that is low in these branch chain amino acids, right? Now, what's the mode of inheritance of this? This is inherited in a chromosomal recessive fashion, right? And you can cure this with a liver transplant. You do a liver transplant, you will fix this problem permanently. Now, question 32 says, you have a 33-year-old female presents with a two-day history of severe colicky generalized abdominal pain. Okay, right? So, you see a lot of abdominal pain. During the interview, her speech is predominated by loose associations. Her mom noticed that she had been passing dark red urine in the intervening time period, right? So what's going on here? See, abdominal pain, neuropsych symptoms, dark urine, right? This is acute intermittent porphyria, right? This person has acute intermittent, right? Acute intermittent porphyria, AIP, right? So what is the pathophysiology behind AIP, right? The pathophysiology is these people, they have a deficiency of a key enzyme in the heme synthesis pathway, right? It's called porphobilinogen yaminase. Porphobilinogen, right? 
yaminis. Ofo bilinochin yaminis. The easy way to remember this, remember it as peanut butter and jelly yaminis, right? Peanut butter and jelly yaminis. And then you will mix it up, right? PBG yaminis, right? So because they have a deficiency of that, again, some porphyrins, ofo bilinogen, begins to build up, right? So what's the mode of inheritance of AIP? It's actually inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. It's inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, right? So why would the person that has AIP be hyponatremic? They can actually get this because they have SIDH. SIDH is a pretty common manifestation, right? SIDH is a pretty common manifestation of, of acute intermittent porphyrin, so they can be hyponatremic. So how do we treat these people? Well, the thing is, if porphobilinogen in the aminates is not working, then you don't want things to be building up. So the thing you're going to do is you're going to try to inhibit, right? You're going to try to inhibit the rate-limiting enzyme of heme synthesis, which is called ALAS, aminolevolumic acid synthetase, right? ALAS. So the way you're going to inhibit it is you can give the person IV glucose, right? Or IV heme, or you can give a drug called hematin. These things will all inhibit, will all inhibit uh, ALAS, right? They will all inhibit ALAS. Now, what are the things that usually will trigger these people's symptoms? Well, the thing that will usually trigger these people's symptoms is when they take a SIP P450 inducer, right? Well, let me write these here, right? So a cytochrome P450 inducer, right? So things that induce SIP P450, right? So what are those things that induce CP450? I'm going to use this list again today, but I'm not going to rewrite it again. So I definitely pay attention here, right? So remember the drug gristiofovin, right? Remember carbamazepine, right? Remember carbamazepine, right? Remember phenytoin, phenytoin, right? Remember your barbiturates, barbiturates, right? Remember Ifampin, the TB medication, right? Remember St. John's wort, right? St. John's wort, right? And also if you're a chronic alcoholic, this can increase your risk of having these problems, right? Now, how do you differentiate this from the close cousin? Well, the close cousin here is porphyria, is a different color for that, is porphyria cutanea tarda, right? Porphyria. Cutinia tarda. Cutinia tarda, right? So this, the name already tells you what you're looking for. Look at this, cutinia, right? So these people have skin findings, right? And these people will also have hyperhidrosis. They sweat a lot. They sweat a lot. They sweat a lot, right? So that's how you differentiate this from AIP, right? And AIP is from a deficiency of an enzyme called urod. Urod. Right. Urod means uroporphyrinogen decarboxylase. Uroporphyrinogen, uroporphyrinogen decarboxylase, right? Uroporphyrinogen decarboxylase, right? Now, if a person is diagnosed with porphyria cutina tarda, you're actually supposed to screen these people for hep C, right? Because about 30% of people that have PCT have concomitant hep C infection, right? Now, how do we treat, like, for these porphyrias, is there a drug you can give just for long-term prophylaxis? Long-term prophylaxis. 
is actually going to be cimetidine. Cimetidine slowly brings down a, per a person's porphyrina levels, right? And again, porphyrocutinia tarda, the way you can treat porphyrocutinia tarda is with phlebotomy, right? Is with phlebotomy. Because the thing is, if you phlebotomize a person, you create a mild iron deficiency, right? When you create that mild iron deficiency, then protoporphyrin notices that, huh, I'm not seeing any iron to get married to anymore. So protoporphyrin is like, okay, let's just go ahead and stop making ourselves, right? So you genetically inhibit that heme synthesis pathway, right? The synthesis of porphyrins by just having an iron deficiency, right? So that's why you do phlebotomy as treatment for porphyrocutinia tarda. Okay, I'm going to erase this. Keep going. Okay. Uh, question 33 says, we have a 35-year-old male. He presents with a three-month history of shortness of breath that is worsened by exertion. He has also had a productive cough during the intervening period, right? Look at this. His father died of liver cancer, right? His father died of liver cancer at the age of 50, right? Died at the age of 50. His LFTs are mildly elevated, right? You're seeing liver problems and pulmonary problems, right? This person has alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right? Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right? Now, how is this inherited? This is actually inherited in an autosomal co-dominant fashion. Autosomal, both of the genes are important, right? So, autosomal co-dominant fashion, right? So, what's the pathophysiology? Well, the thing is, the mutation here causes these people to have misfolded alpha-1 antitrypsin, right? So, that misfolded alpha-1 antitrypsin is ineffective, right? In fact, many times, as that alpha-1 antitrypsin builds up in cells, it begins to cause apoptosis, of those hepatocytes, right? Those hepatocytes begin to die. That's why these people have a high risk of liver cancer, right? So if you don't have effective alpha-1 antitrypsin, right, right, then proteases will destroy your lungs. Proteases will destroy your lungs, right? And the person will have a panacinar emphysema, right? They'll have a panacinar emphysema. So what is the thing that worsens morbidity and mortality in this condition? This is actually smoking. If you smoke, your lungs are going to go to go down the wastebasket pretty quickly, right? The person's lungs are going to be destroyed pretty quickly because the thing is, if a person has alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right? If they have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and they, they don't smoke, their life expectancy is about the same as people that don't have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and don't smoke, right? Now, sorry, I mistakenly wrote this. I was referring to this for another question, so we'll talk about that later, not for this, right? So what's the associated vasculitis here? The associated vasculitis is actually Wegener's. These people, there is a very strong association on MBME exams before, between alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and granulomatosis with, with polyangiitis, right? GPA, right? Which is also called, you know, the old name of Wegener's. Now, what are the classic microscopy findings, right, for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right? What are the classic microscopy findings? They'll tell you that, oh, they do a liver biopsy, right? And they find PAS-positive macrophages, 
right? They tell you that, oh, they find PAS positive macrophages. If you see that, again, think about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right? And again, this is folded alpha-1 antitrypsin. It's going to build up in the liver. It's going to build up in the liver, right? That's why these people's livers get destroyed. Now, what is the genotype that tends to be symptomatic, right? So what is the genotype that tends to be symptomatic? These are usually people that have the PIZZ, the PIZZ. So they have both mutated genes, right? That's why, again, remember, what is almost co-dominant. Those are the people that generally tend to be tend to be symptomatic, right? And then, why is smoking bad in this disorder? Again, I've talked about it already, right? Smoking increases the production of proteases, right? And then smoking also inactivates inactivates antiproteases, things that are supposed to help you, right? So basically, if a person has alpha, I mean, regardless of what, how good, uh, uh, even if you don't have alpha and antitrypsin disorder, right? You shouldn't smoke, right? Smoking is bad, right? Now, how do we treat this? Typically, again, you can give these people pooled alpha-1 antitrypsin, right? But again, the most effective intervention in reducing mortality in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is to not smoke. That is the most effective, that's very high it is the most effective in, uh, intervention in preventing morbidity and mortality in, in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Okay, so let me go ahead and uh, take people's questions. Then we'll go from there. So question 34. Okay. Now, 13-year-old uh, male. So let's hold off on questions until 8.50 Pacific time, right? So, uh, okay. So let's hold off on stuff in the chat box until 8.50 Pacific. Okay. So question 34. A 13-year-old male is brought to the physician for his annual physical, right? He's noted to be in the 99th percentile for weight. The patient has moderate intellectual disability. He was profound, so 99 percentile, so he's an obese kid, right? He was profoundly hypotonic at birth and required a prolonged stay in the NICU before discharge, right? So see this child, very obese, has intellectual disability. If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this is Prater Willy syndrome, right? This is Prater Willy syndrome. Right now, what's the associated metabolic disease in Prader Willi? It's going to be diabetes, right? Because these kids they eat a ton, right? Now, what's the pathophysiology? So, please, for this part, I will just give you the two words. So, genomic imprinting. I'm going to explain, but please, this I'm not going to be able to explain it again, right? So, pay attention here. Although, if you're like, oh, I want to tune off my brain, you can just keep genomic imprinting and uniparental disomy in mind. Those are the two genetic principles they will test. I'm going to explain the pathophys, but please, I will not be able to explain it again. It's a long explanation, right? So just pay attention now and get it done. I will explain it well. If you listen, you will understand it, okay? So please, no one should ask me about explaining these things again. I'm not going to be able to do it again, right? So that we don't fall behind. <laughs> okay, so the thing is, let's talk about the normal situation, right? So the thing is, in... And in fact, I'm basically answering these two questions, right? Pathophys and genetic mechanisms. In the normal situation, let's say you're a boy, right? Chromosome 15, you have two chromosome 15 because we're diploid organisms, right? So the normal situation is if you're a boy, chromosome 15 from mom, let's say you have the 
you have gene A from mom. Chromosome 15 from dad, you have gene A from dad. The normal situation is, let's say this gene A is the gene that relates to Prader-Willi syndrome, right? The thing is, if you're a guy, you're going to turn off the gene from mom. That's it. If you're a guy, you turn off mom's gene, right? And then you enjoy the gene product from dad. This is what is supposed to happen. And that mom's gene is turned off by genomic imprinting. Okay? It's turned off by genomic imprinting. But in Prader-Willi syndrome, the thing that happens is, so again, same deal, chromosome 15, chromosome 15, you have from mom and you have from dad, right? So the thing is, because you're a guy, you've turned off the one from mom by imprinting. You've turned off the one from mom by imprinting. But the one from dad, you actually have a mutation. So because you have that mutation, you have no gene product. That is the pathophysiology behind Prader-Willi syndrome. So that's one way you can get Prader-Willi syndrome. But what is another way you can get Prader-Willi syndrome? Again, let's say we see this chromosome 15 from mom. Let's say you're a guy. But because of some problem with mitosis or whatever, you get both chromosome 15s from mom. You get both chromosome 15s from mom, right? So you're literally, the thing is, is you're getting both from mom and you're a guy, you're going to turn off both from mom by imprinting. So the thing that caused your problem here is you got both genes from one parent. Both genes from one parent. So uniparental, right? One parent, uniparental, disomy, gave you both genes, right? Does that make sense? So hopefully that makes sense, right? So that's the pathophase behind Prader-Willi syndrome, right? So what's usually true of the ghrelin levels in these people? So we're going to have high levels of ghrelin, right? That's why those kids eat a lot. That's why these kids eat a lot, right? Because remember, ghrelin makes you hungry, right? And the classic eye finding in these kids is strabismus. These kids tend to get strabismus on MBM exams. Now, question 35 says, what is the most common cause of esophageal perforation on MBM exams? Well, this is going to be an EGD complication, right? An EGD complication. An EGD complication. Okay. Now, what is the next best step in management of a patient? Again, MBSIM means next best step in management, right? So what is the next best step in management in a patient who is diagnosed with a malaria wise tear, right? A patient that's diagnosed with a malaria wise tear, they're going to do supportive care, right? They're going to do supportive care. Now, how do you reduce the risk of future bleeds in patients with esophageal varices? How do you reduce the risk of future bleeds? Well, you can put them on propranolol, right? Most beta blockers work besides propranolol, right? But you can also put them on an aldosterone antagonist, like spironolactone or eplerinol, right? These things decrease portal pressures, right? They decrease portal pressures, right? The buzzword you're looking for here. People actually don't really understand how these things help, right? Well, these things, they cause something called splanchnic vasoconstriction. Splanchnic vasoconstriction. They cause splanchnic vasoconstriction. Now, what should always be done after placing a central line on an MBM exam? Right? You've just placed a central line. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to confirm correct placement. You're supposed to confirm correct placement, 
right, with an ultrasound. It's supposed to confirm correct placement with an ultrasound. Okay. Now, question 36 and 37 says, what is the relationship between pericardial and ventricular feeding pressures in a patient with pericardial tamponade, right? So the thing is, if a person has cardiac tamponade, so let's say this is their heart, right? And then let's say this is the pericardial space. Let's say this is the pericardial space, right? So there's fluid in that pericardial space that is squishing the heart, right? So for that fluid to be able to squish the heart, that means the pressures on the outside must exceed the pressures on the inside, right? Because for you to be able to squeeze something, that means you're much stronger on the outside than on the inside, right? So the thing is, your pericardial pressures in a person that has uh, cardiac tamponade are greater than your ventricular feeling pressures. They are greater than your ventricular feeling pressures. Now, the next one says, loss of radial and ulnar artery pulses with the shoulder dislocation. So, person has dislocated their shoulder, and then you notice that, oh, wow, their radial and their ulnar pulses are gone. Then, I want you to think about axillary artery damage. Axillary artery damage, right? The problem is at the level of the shoulder. Now, the next one says, loss of dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial pulses with posterior knee dislocation, right? With posterior knee dislocation. I want you to think about popliteal artery damage. Because remember, the popliteal fossa is behind the knee joint, right? So this is a pop damage to the popliteal artery, right? Damage to the popliteal artery, right? So this person has damage to the popliteal artery, right? Person has damage to the popliteal artery. Okay. So I'm going to erase this so we can move on up. Okay, so let's talk about some shock, right? Let's talk about shock. Super high your topic. You're going to see it on your exam, pretty much guaranteed. Okay, so question 38 says we have a 12 year old male, right? But before we go to shock, I guess let's deal with this problem first, right? So I have a 12 year old male, he's brought to the ER, right? with severe headache and high fevers over the last 24 hours, okay? Physical exam is normal for nocor rigidity and star-shaped petechial lesions on the upper and lower extremities, okay? These lesions do not fade away under glass pressure. The patient is somnolent and unable to participate in the interview, right? So whenever a person has meningitis and they have skin findings of any sort, right? This person has meningococcal meningitis. This person has meningococcal meningitis, right? From Neisseria meningitis, right? From Neisseria meningitis. Now, the mechanism behind the petechia here is that people that have Neisseria meningitis, many times the toxin actually breaks down blood vessel walls. The toxin breaks down blood vessel walls. The toxin breaks down blood vessel walls. That's why many times these people tend to have skin findings, right? Now, classic outbreak, you can make this a military question, right? So you can see like a military, like in a military barrack, right? Like an army installation, right? Or like in a college or high school setting, right? Those are places where you can see people having like an outbreak of Nigeria, right? Now, what is the major, what is the major virulence factor, right? For Nigeria meningitis, right? What's the major virulence factor, right? 
But the most part, again, remember, is the fact, right, that it has an endotoxin, right? Remember, most gram negatives, like my cereal, have endotoxins, right? Although capsules are also important, right? Capsules are also important. So how do you prevent this? Well, just get vaccinated, right? Get vaccinated, right? And you, you, you won't get into that uh, problem. So how do we treat meningococcal meningitis, right? How do we treat this? Remember, you're going to treat this with ceftriaxone on an exam, right? You're going to treat this with ceftriaxone, right? That's a third-generation cephalosporin that really covers my serum. And then if you're a close contact, what do you give? Remember, the preferred agent is rifampin, right? Is rifampin, right? But other things you can give, you can give ciprofloxacin, ciprofloxacin, right? Or you can give ceftriaxone. So you can give rifampin, you can give ciprofloxacin, right? Or you can give ceftriaxone. I'll say that again. You can give rifampin, ciprofloxacin, or ceftriaxone. But if the person is pregnant, the only thing you can give is ceftriaxone, right? Because rifampin and cipro are teratogens, right? So if the person is pregnant, the person is pregnant, then you're going to give ceftriaxone. Now, what is the genetic disease or what is the inciting drug, right? What is the inciting drug, right? Remember, people can get recurrent mycelial infections, right? If they take eculizumab. We talked about this many times yesterday, right? Because it's a monoclonal antibody that inhibits the complement protein C5. Because as we've said, I'll answer this next question simultaneously. If you have a C5 to C9 defect, any of those proteins defective, right? You're going to get recurrent mycelial infections. Right now, why do people that have sickle cell disease get infection with the encapsulated organisms like Mycerium meningitis? Well, remember, it's because they have no spleen, right? Because they have asplenia, right? That's why they get into trouble, right? Now, after two days of therapy, so this person has meningitis, two days of therapy, the patient suddenly decompensates. His palpable systolic blood pressure is 60, his glucose is 40, and his potassium is 6.7 again. You're seeing the signature of hyperkalemia, right? Hypoglycemia. This person has primary adrenal insufficiency from Waterhouse Friedrichsen syndrome, right? Remember, this is where you get a hemorrhagic uh, infraction of the adrenal cortex, right? In the setting of meningococcal infection, right? So the meningitis can spread hematogenously to the person's adrenal cortex. Okay, there we go. So this is the diagnosis here is Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome. Okay, so let's talk about septic shock, right? So let's build this in layers, right? So there's a different color for this, right? So first things first, what are search criteria? Again, I know there's all this stuff with QSOFA, but the MDMEs, they don't care about QSOFA at all at this time, right? They're still using SIRS. So SIRS is what you have to know for your exam. And also SIRS really does help actually in the actual real world. Okay, now, uh, SIRS, right? So what are the SIRS criteria, right? What are the SIRS criteria? Remember, SIRS has four criteria, right? There's a temperature criteria, right? If your temperature is less than 36 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, that's one of the criteria. Another criteria is the white count criteria. If your white count is less than 4,000 or greater than... 10,000, right? Oh, sorry, it's 12,000. Right? So if it's less than 4,000 or greater than 12,000. 
Another criteria is the heart rate criteria. If your heart rate is greater than 90, right? If your heart rate is greater than 90, right? And then another criteria is if your systolic blood pressure is less than 90, right? Your systolic blood pressure is less than 90. That's a surrogate for hypertension, right? I mean, hypotension. If you have more than, if you have at least two out of four of these criteria positive, you have SIRS. I'll say that again. If you meet at least two or more, right? So if you meet just two, you have SIRS. If you meet two or more of these criteria, you have SIRS positive. Now, what is the thing that buys us a diagnosis of sepsis? Well, it's a person that is SIRS positive, right? And we see a source of infection. If you see that, then you're like, oh, this person is uh, has sepsis. Now, how about severe sepsis? Severe sepsis, so again, you're seeing these things in layers. Severe sepsis is a person that has sepsis, right? They have sepsis. But in addition to that sepsis, they have evidence of organ dysfunction, right? They have evidence of organ dysfunction, right? So let's say, for example, you notice their creatinine is going up, right? That means their kidneys are beginning to fail. Or their AST, ALT is going up. It means their liver is beginning to fail, right? Now, septic shock is a person, right? Septic shock is a person that is not responding to fluids, not responding to IV fluids, right? Basically, once you need to initiate pressures on a patient, they're officially in septic shock, right? Their blood pressure just does not seem to be responding to you giving them fluids. Okay. Now, what is the acid-base imbalance, right, that we find in people that have sepsis, Right? The big thing I want you to think about is they'll have a metabolic acidosis. They'll have a metabolic acidosis, right? Because they have a decrease in their bicarb, right? Because remember, these people usually are going to have some kind of lactic acidosis, right? They're going to have some kind of lactic acidosis, right? But in addition to the metabolic acidosis, these people will also have a respiratory alkalosis, right? They also have a respiratory alkalosis, right? They also have a respiratory alkalosis. So they have a metabolic acidosis, respiratory alkalosis, because they're like, they're struggling to breathe, right? so they're blowing off a ton of CO2. Now, what is the most common cause of septic shock, right? What is the most common cause of septic shock? So usually, people that get septic shock, they usually get it because they have a gram-positive organism causing infection, right? They have a gram-positive organism causing infection, right? Many times people get septic shock from gram-positive organisms. Now, what is going to be true of the systemic vascular resistance in septic shock, right? What's going to be true of the systemic vascular resistance in septic shock? Well, the key thing to remember is, remember, there's a lot of inflammation. So you're using all this histamine, all these bradykinins and stuff. And what do those things do? Those things bring down the systemic vascular resistance because they cause vasodilation, Increase vascular permeability, right? So the systemic vascular resistance is going to go down, right? So think about it. If your systemic vascular resistance goes down, will it be easier or harder for blood to leave your heart? It will be easier, right? Because it's almost like you're removing all the traffic, so the blood can flow easily. So these people's cardiac output goes up. And the thing is, I know many resources make a big fuss about early septic shock and late septic shock. Do not worry about those differences. The only septic shock, I'll say this with confidence, the only septic shock you need to know for your exam is early septic shock. That is all they care about 
on MBME exams. I'll throw that out there. Okay. Now, what's going to be true of the pulmonary capillary rest pressure? Remember, pulmonary capillary rest pressure is a surrogate for your left atrial pressure. Right? It's a surrogate for your left atrial pressure. So the thing is, these people's, if your heart is pumping out blood easily, that means blood is not going to be collecting in the left atrium, right? So the left atrial pressure is going to be low, right? The pulmonary capillary rest pressures are going to be low. So what kind of shock is septic shock? Septic shock is an example of a distributive shock, right? It's an example of a distributive shock. Many times distributive shocks are shocks where you have low systemic vascular resistance. A low systemic vascular resistance shock is a distributive shock. Now, what's the pressure of choice in septic shock? Remember, it's going to be norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is first line, right? If that's not bringing up, bringing up their pressures, they can go to vasopressing. Vasopressing is second line. If that's not bringing up their pressures, they can go to epinephrine. Epinephrine is a third-line pressure in the management of septic shock. Now, what is the most common kind of infection causing disease? Actually, going to be a UTI. UTIs are the most common cause of sepsis, right? Because again, UTIs are just generally a lot more common than you know, like you know, pneumonia and stuff, right? But again, don't confuse. Oh, UTIs being the most common kind of infection with gram-positive organisms being the most common kind of organism causing septic shock, right? And again, what's the bad sequelae of septic shock? Again, this is going to be multi-organ dysfunction syndrome, right? Multi-organ dysfunction syndrome, right? Now, question 40 says, we have a 37-year-old male with a history of familial hypercholesterolemia, presents with a two-hour history of severe chest pain relating to his left jaw. This person has an MI, right? So the person has an MI, right? What kind of shock are they in? I hope you're seeing divine. They're in cardiogenic shock, right? They're in cardiogenic shock. So let's say some more things about this, right? So again, Cardiogenic shock, your heart literally is not working, right? Again, the thing is, these shock questions, I always feel really sad when I see people get shock questions wrong. There's literally like no reason, literally no reason why I should ever get a shock question wrong. This is just basic physiology, right? Again, this is why sometimes Anki doesn't really help people much, right? Because you see people, they, they, like, that's the thing, right? Sometimes I wish I were an actual immediate question right, right? Because you see people, you tell them, oh, what is this? They'll just spit out the fact, spit out the fact, spit out the fact. And then just make it a second, third other question. And all their knowledge just falls apart, right? That Anki did not seem to help them in those circumstances. So there's nothing wrong with Anki. Anki is good. But make sure you understand the things you're Anki in. That's the missing link for many people. Many people are like, ooh, ooh, ooh. let me hit that F, let me hit that one, two, three. They keep hitting those buttons, right? But then you ask them, oh, how does this drug work, right? Or they tell them, oh, you see a person that has PNH and the person has sepsis. What's the most likely organism? And they're like, huh, I didn't see my own key there. Again, they're not able to make any integrations because you understand that it's just not there, right? It's just not there. I'm telling you, Anki is good. And that's the thing because many people, they'll read on Reddit on SDN. Oh, I used Anki and I got 270, right? The thing is, many times people don't get the whole story. Those people that got a 270, I can almost promise you, they used Anki. But their understanding was there. They had that solid foundation. They usually will not tell you that part. You think people just crush the U.S. assemblies just doing Anki? No. Those people, check check their study habits. They won't tell you, oh, this is what I was doing my first two years of med school. Or I was attending classes. 
or who I was making sure I understood the path of faith, right? That's why what may work for one person may not really work for you because you cannot perfectly replicate everything that person did, right? That's one thing people don't understand. Okay, let me get off my soapbox and come back to it. So, an MI, right? MI cardiogenic shock. Your heart is literally not working. If your heart doesn't work, you're not going to have any cardiac output. Your cardiac output is going to be low, right? So if your cardiac output is low, your body is going to be like, hmm, hey, my blood pressure is really low. Let me see if I can bump up my blood pressure somehow, right? So what would your body do to your systemic vascular resistance? You'll try to raise it up, right? Because if you clamp down on vessels, that will up your blood pressure by increasing systemic vascular resistance. So the SVR is going to go up, right? Again, if your heart is not working, if you're not pumping out blood, then the blood is just going to sit there and chill. So it's going to be building up, building up, building up, right? So your left atrial pressure, your left atrial pressure, right, which is also called your pulmonary capillary rest pressure, is going to be increased because the blood is chilling. Your central venous pressure is also called your right atrial pressure, right? Because if you think about it, where do all the veins in your body drain into? They drain into the right atrium, right? They drain into the right atrium, right? So your right atrium is the central hub for your veins. That's why it's called central venous pressure. Again, if your heart doesn't work, you're going to build up all that blood, right? So your central venous pressure is going to go up, right? Now, cardiac index. Cardiac index is the same thing as cardiac output divided by body surface area. If your cardiac output is low, obviously your cardiac index is going to be low, right? When a person has cardiogenic shock, we're going to use drugs like digoxin, right? Or you can use a drug like dobutamine. Dobutamine is a beta-1 agonist, right? It's a beta-1 agonist. You can use it to improve a person's cardiac output. You can also use the drug neurinone. I love this drug. This drug is amazing, right? Neurinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor that can be used in the treatment of cardiogenic shock, okay? So let's move on to the next one. Hopefully this makes sense. I'm really trying hard to really explain this as well as I can humanly can. All right. Okay, so question 41 says, uh, 44-year-old male is brought to the ED by ambulance after being involved in a severe motor vehicle accident. His blood pressure is 60 over 40 with a heart rate of 34, right? The patient's skin is warm and flushed, right? This makes no sense. If you're hypotensive, you're supposed to be tachycardic, right? If you're hypotensive, your body is like, ooh, let the heart contract really quick so that we can increase cardiac output, right? If you're hypotensive, you're supposed to be tachycardic. When you see this person, this person is hypotensive and they are bradycardic. And their skin is warm and flushed too. Like, this makes no sense. If you see this, I want you to think of neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock. Right? Neurogenic shock, basically, think of it as a knockout. If you, if you understand it this way, you'll be pretty much set. Think of it as a knockout of the sympathetic nervous system, right? The sympathetic nervous system is not working, right? So if it's not working, right, what's going to be true of your cardiac output? Remember, your sympathetic nervous system increases your heart rate, cardiac output, everything, right? So your cardiac output here is going to be low. Your cardiac output is going to be low, right? Now, remember, your sympathetic nervous system gives you vascular tone, right? Your sympathetic nervous system gives you vascular tone. So if it's not working, are you going to have any vascular tone? No. Your, so your systemic vascular resistance is going to be low, right? 
your systemic vascular resistance is going to be low. Now, for people that have neurogenic shock, what is usually true of their CVP and their pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? Again, think about it. These people, they're not sending any blood back to the heart. They're sending very limited blood back to the heart. So the heart, even if the cardiac output is low, there's literally like no actual gas in the tank, right? Because again, their SVR is so high, I mean, so low, right? That they are not, blood is just pulling around. It's not going to the heart, right? So their pulmonary capillary rate pressure is going to be low, and their CVP is also going to be low as well, right? So what kind of shock is this? This one is almost like a special kind of shock, right? It's distributive. Remember I said, whenever your SVR is low, that's going to be a distributive kind of shock. Now, treatment strategies for this, we're going to give these people IV fluids. We're going to give them normal saline, right? In addition to giving them that normal saline, right, we're going to give them pressors. We're going to give them pressors like norepinephrine, right? We're going to give them pressors like norepinephrine, right? Now, assuming this patient goes into respiratory arrest, where is the likely lesion, right? Where is the likely lesion, right? Remember, this is probably going to be a problem with C3 to 5. Remember, C345 keeps the diaphragm alive, right? So they have diaphragmatic paralysis. Okay. Now, what will be true of the AE gradient in this patient? So notice, this problem is not in... So if a person has diaphragmatic paralysis, the diaphragm is not part of the lung. The problem is outside the lung. Again, you see people, Anki warriors, right? They memorize, oh, these are all the things that cause high AA gradient. These are the things that cause normal AA gradient. Do you know what? I've never tried to memorize those things. Like, what's the point? It makes no sense. The easy way to think about this is, if a problem is not in the lungs, then there's always going to be okay diffusion across the alveolar membrane, right? The AA gradient will be normal. Whenever you have an extra pulmonary cause of hypoxia, the AA gradient will always be normal, right? But if you have an intrapulmonary, so let's say the actual lungs are not working well, like pulmonary fibrosis, pneumonia, whatever, right? Those people will have an increased AA gradient because the blood, the oxygen in the alveoli will not be able to diffuse to the blood in your pulmonary capillaries, right? Simple rule to follow, right? Now, what's the mechanism behind the bradycardia again? Your sympathetic nervous system is not working, right? It's not working. Okay, now question 42. A 43-year-old male is brought to the ED by ambulance after being involved in a severe motor vehicle accident. That's sad. His blood pressure is 60 over 40. A large fluid collection is palpated in the lower abdomen and pelvis. This guy is bleeding, right? This guy is bleeding. This guy has hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic, right, from hemorrhage. We can call this hemorrhagic shock. Hemorrhagic shock. Right? So again, if you don't have enough blood in your body, you don't have any gas in your tank, your cardiac output is going to be low. Right? And your body is like, huh, man, my blood pressure is really low. Let's try to see if I can, uh, you know, raise my blood pressure somehow. So you're going to increase SVR, right? So you're going to increase your systemic vascular resistance. And again, if you have no gas in the tank, your preload is going to be dead, right? So there's literally no oxygen, in, I mean, no, not much blood in the person's heart. So the left atrial pressure, which is the PCWP, and the right atrial pressure, which is the CVP, are both low. You're going to treat this by giving fluids first, and then, and that's going to be normal sealing, and then you're going to give blood, right? Fluids first, and then you're going to give blood. Okay, now what is the next best step in management 
given the following patient scenarios. Okay, you have a seven-year-old female with a frothy green, foul-smelling discharge from the vagina. Oh, that's not okay, right? You're not supposed to have trick okay. as a seven-year-old. It's an STI, right? So you're going to call CPS. Right? We talked about this yesterday. Now, you have a 74-year-old female. She's brought to the physician for her annual physical. Multiple bruises are visualized during the physical exam. When asked about these lesions by the physician, the patient states, I'm fine, right? The patient states, I'm fine. If you see this, right, this is elderly abuse. This is elderly abuse, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to call adult protective services. You're going to call adult protective services. Now, what kind of questions should be used to initiate a discussion on MDA means in relation to intimate partner abuse? Right? The first thing you're supposed to ask is, do you feel safe at home? Again, they love these physician response questions. Do you feel safe at home? Do you feel safe at home? Right? And obviously, you want to do it in a private setting. Right? You don't want to do it in the presence of the abusing partner. So they don't like, you know, like kill the person at home. Right? I'll tell them that. Now, what if the partner refuses your suggestions? What are you supposed to do? Well, you can just create a safety plan. Create a safety plan. Whenever you are dealing with intimate partner violence, you do not call CPS or APS. Again, CPS is for kids. APS is for elderly people. People in the middle, they essentially have no protection. They have to take the initiative. Okay. Now, question 44 says, a four-year-old female is brought to the physician by her mother with a two-week history of severe diarrhea. The mother has presented to the same clinic multiple times for the same complaint. No therapeutic interventions appear to have worked. The physician decides to perform a colonoscopy, which reveals extensive brownish discoloration of the colon. Right? So we're seeing melanosis coli. Right? So what's happening to this kid? Mom is giving her laxative, right? Which is sad, right? So the diagnosis here is going to be factitious disorder imposed on another. Factitious disorder, this is the new DSM-5 name, right, imposed on another. This is something we used to call Munchausen's by proxy back in the day. It's now called factitious disorder imposed on another, right? Now, your next best step in management, this is a kind of child abuse, right? So, you're going to call CPS, right? And again, what are the classic signs of child abuse on MDM exams? Again, if you see spiral fractures, right, if you see spiral fractures, that's a classic sign, right? Another classic one is if you see bilateral retinal hemorrhages. Bilateral retinal hemorrhages, right? Another classic one you may also see is if the person has a subdural hematoma. Subdural hematoma, right? But you'll have like, you know, injuries in many different stages, right? Now, what's the most common cause of death in this population? We talked about this yesterday, right? The word, the refined term they use on Indians these days is abusive head trauma, right? Because usually they die of those sub subdurals, right? Abusive head trauma, right? Abusive head trauma. Abusive head trauma. All right. So let's move on to the next page. Let's see. Okay. Okay. So this is actually an audience participation part of this. Okay. 
So let's read this question. So this question says, um, we have a oops, so we have a forty sixty seven year old man presents to the Med Twenty Clinic. He mentions not feeling well for the last couple of weeks. Upon admission, a CBC BMP ABHD is drawn, which shows the following values. His pH is 7.2, his bicarb is 16, right? His PCO2 is 33, and his PO2 is 95. So this patient most likely has what? Give some time to think about this. Well, those things, acid base, just follow the law. You'll be in good shape. I'll teach you what the law is. Think of me as the judge here. Okay, so let's talk about this, right? So the thing is, again, standardization. Talked about standardization a lot today. It's a great way to take exams, right? Instead of, like, shifting shadows all the time, just, you know, follow one set of principles and be in good shape, right? So, whenever you're doing an acid-based problem, you always follow the following steps. Step A, ask yourself, is the pH less than 7.35 or greater than 7.45? Well, this person's pH is less than 7.35. Right? So does this person have an acidosis or an alkalosis? Let's see it in the chat box. Does this person have an acidosis or an alkalosis? Very good. They have an acidosis. Excellent. Okay. And then step B, well, there are two ways you can have an acidosis. You can either have it from a high PCO2 or you can have it from a low bicarb. Right? So you can either have high PCO2 causing your problems or you can have low bicarb causing your problems. Right? Which one is present here? Which one is present here? Which one is present here? Low bicarb. Very good. So this person has metabolic acidosis, right? We know that for a fact. But again, don't forget your compensation. Whenever a person has a metabolic acidosis, you're supposed to deploy what special formula? You're supposed to deploy what special formula? Winters. Very good. So winters is 1.5 times your bicarb plus 8, plus or minus 2, right? Plus or minus 2. So the bicarb here is 16. So 1.5 times 16 is like 24. 24 plus 8 is 32. Plus or minus 2, right? So your range here is 30 to 34, right? Now, is the PCO2 within the range? Is the PCO2 within the range? Is the PCO2 within the range? It is, right? So because it's within the range, did we compensate appropriately? Did we compensate appropriately? Did we compensate appropriately? Yes, we did. Very good. Yes, we did. So because we compensated appropriately, the right answer is E. So metabolic acidosis with the respiratory compensation. Very good. Okay. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Okay. Let's try the next one. A 55-year-old woman presents to the med. Concomitant just means here that you haven't mixed the song, right? Sometimes the MBME is you learn big words from MBME exams. Like the first time I heard the word slovenly was from an MBME exam. Slovenly habits. I was like, 
Ah, right? Yeah, sometimes they, they do those weird things on exams. Okay. Now, but many times you can get the question right even if you don't understand the word, right? So, 55 year old woman presents to the Med 20 clinic. She mentions not feeling well for the last couple of weeks. You draw the labs. You see her pH is 7.63. Her bicarb is 35. BCO2 is 40. And PO2 is 87. And the thing is, all of the winter's formula, there's no other formulas you need to memorize. You know, anion gap and stuff is there, but all the compensations for all the alkalosis and stuff, you don't need to know those things. I'll show you how to answer those things. So, let's see. What do we think here? What do we think? So, I'll give you some time. Let's see if you are all right. Okay, so first things first. Is the pH greater than seven point, less than 7.35 or greater than 7.45? Well, we see that the pH is greater than 7.45. So does this person have an acidosis or an alkalosis? Alkalosis, very good. This person has an alkalosis. Notice, I'm not gonna deviate from the path. I'm really gonna do the same thing. And then there are two ways you can get an alkalosis. You can have a low PCO2, Blowing off a ton of CO2, or you have a high bicarb. Which one obtains in this question? Which one obtains in this question? Very good. High bicarb, right? So this person has a metabolic alkalosis. But again, you always have to check for compensation. So let me ask you this How does a person compensate for a metabolic alkalosis? How does a person compensate for a metabolic alkalosis? Come on, let's use the chat box. Very good. We're going to hypoventilate to retain PCO2. Okay. So you should observe a high PCO2, right? You should observe a high PCO2. Is this person's PCO2 high? Very good. The person's PCO2 is not high. So because this person's PCO2 is not high, are they compensating appropriately? No. So because they're not compensating appropriately, in addition to them having a metabolic alkalosis, what other problem do they have? What other problem do they have? Because you, what you're expecting as right the correct compensation is for the PCO2 to be high. But the PCO2 is not high. So because it's not high, they also have what? They also have what? Again, remember, if your PCO2 is high, that means we're going to acidosis territory. But the PCO2 is not high. The PCO2 is not high. So what do they have? Come on, be brave. The PCO2 is not high. So what other acid-based problem do they have? Very good. They have a respiratory alkalosis, right? So guess what? The correct answer here is H. Have a metabolic alkalosis, and at the same time, have a respiratory alkalosis. So for these, the, there are formulas, but you don't need to memorize them. All you need to ask yourself is, what is the expected direction of change? If you're not meeting those directions, that means you have the other disorder. That's it. Okay? Does that make sense? Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Again, if you notice, I'm slowing down a lot in these sections just to make sure that people actually understand. 
right? Because this stuff is stuff that gives people uh, issues. Why come, again, the reason it's not pure is because they have other problems, right? Again, if, for example, I didn't give you a PCO2 at all, right, then you would pick option B, right? But again, whenever you get acid-based problems, you almost always should look at the, at the compensation. Okay, question 47 says, for PCO2, I use 40 to 45 as the normal values. Okay, now a 92-year-old male comes to the Med 20 clinic. He mentions not feeling well for the last couple of weeks. Upon admission, as you get all these labs, right? And you see his pH is 7.31. His bicarb is 20. His PCO2 is 23. His PO2 is 95. Okay, so let's see. What do we all think here? see what do we think Okay, let's do this together then. Right? So, is the pH, the pH is less than 7.35, right? So, does this person have an acidosis or an alkalosis? Acidosis, very good. This person has an acidosis. So, there are one of two ways you can get an acidosis. Again, just always follow the rules. It's almost like you're plugging and playing. You can either have, there are very few people that got this right, by the way. Right? So, you either have a high PCO2 or a low bicarb. Those are the two ways you can get an acidosis. Which one obtains here? Which one do we see in the question? I'm not making any assumptions here. <laughs> very good. The bicarb is low, right? The PCO2 is not high. It is, it is not, right? The bicarb is low. So, this person has what? A metabolic acidosis. Whenever you have a metabolic acidosis, what magic formula are you supposed to use? Winter's formula. Very good. We're going to use Winter's formula. Right? So we have 1.5 times the bicarb, which is 20. Right? That's 30. Right? Plus 8. That's 38. Plus or minus 2. So our range is 36 to 40. Does the PCO2 fall within that range? Does the PCO2 fall within that range? No, it's lower than the range. So because it's lower than the range, what additional problem does this person have? It's lower than the expected range. So what additional problem does this person have? Recall, the person has respiratory alkalosis. So the correct answer is I. Right? The correct answer is I. Again, no reason you should get in these acid-based questions wrong. Right? Just, just follow the rules. Follow the rules. Okay. So does this make sense? Are we all good? I like the formula questions because you're always guaranteed to get the correct answer like if you just do the formula. Okay. Perfect. So let's move on to the next page. Looks like the only question on that. Let's go the rules. 
Notice I didn't deviate from anything that I started. Okay. Now question 48 says, a 12 year old female is brought to the ER by her dad after she started having strange movements of her upper and lower extremities. She has also had severe pain in her knees and high fever. An auscultation of the chest, the astolic murmur is heard at the epic, right? that's mitrostenosis. Mitrostenosis. Then, she had an upper respiratory infection three weeks ago. Physical exam is notable for pink, whirl-like structures on the legs and inner surfaces of the thighs bilaterally, right? Bilaterally. So what's the diagnosis here, right? This person has rheumatic fever, right? This person has rheumatic fever, right? And again, the pathophase is from strep pyogenes infection, right? This person has group A strep infection. And remember, the dermatologic association here, right? You see these whirl-like structures on her thighs, her legs, you see this, right? This is something called erythema marginata, right? Erythema marginata, right? Erythema marginata, right? Again, we've kind of talked about this already, right? But what's the most likely valvular anomaly? Well, it's going to be mitrostenosis, right? Remember, the biggest risk factor for mitrostenosis is rheumatic fever, right? The biggest risk factor for mitrostenosis is rheumatic fever. Now, how do we decrease the incidence of people getting rheumatic fever? Well, the way you want to do that is you want to treat the group A strep infection they have, right? Treat the infection. If you treat the infection, you're lowering their risk of getting rheumatic fever. Now, what is the most likely arrhythmia? Again, we've talked about this already. It's going to be AFib, right? Because again, remember, mitrostenosis is the biggest risk factor for AFib. So people in general that have that have had rheumatic fever, they have a very high risk of having AFib, right? And again, the molecular mechanism behind the symptoms. Remember. Many times, uh, there are certain things called the M protein, right? The M protein. If you have certain strains of rubisra that have the M protein, those things are very immunogenic, right? So the antibodies you make against those M proteins can begin to attack the heart. They can begin to attack the basal ganglia, right? Again, the molecular mechanism is something called molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry, right? High yield antigen, yes, is the M protein, right? Is the M protein. Now, what kind of hypersensitivity reaction is this, right? Where, like, you know, you're using molecular mimicry, you have antibodies, and you're attacking the body's tissues, right? There's going to be a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction, right? This is a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. And again, the way you treat uh, rheumatic fever is you're going to give them penicillin, right? And you're going to give them an NSAID, penicillin and an NSAID. Okay. Question 49, COVID-19, right? So what are risk factors associated with an increased risk of death from COVID-19? The first one is age. If you're older, you have a higher risk of dying, right? Another one is basically just think of all the bad human diseases. If a person has diabetes, right? If a person has hypertension, right? The things you're going to supposed to like not have if you can right? Diabetes, hypertension, right? Or if the person is immunocompromised, right? If a person is immunocompromised. Now, how do you diagnose uh, COVID-19? We're going to do a PCR test. PCR tests are basically the most accurate tests for making the diagnosis. Now, how do you treat COVID-19? Well, the way you treat COVID-19, for the most part, again, you're going to use steroids, right? 
you're going to use oxygen therapy, right? Steroids, you can use oxygen therapy. You can use another drug called remdesivir. Remdesivir, right? You can use remdesivir. We'll talk about remdesivir in a bit, right? Another thing you can also use, although it's shown like limited effectiveness, is convalescent serum. So you literally take serum from people that have recovered, and you're like, oh, take this, right? But again, it doesn't really work. Now, how does remdesivir work? It's how you to know that remdesivir is an RNA polymerase inhibitor. Remdesivir is an RNA polymerase inhibitor. Right? Now, question 50 says, we have a 30-year-old female, 32-year-old female with a family history of breast and ovarian cancers. Presents with a two-month history of right arm pain and swelling. She underwent radiation therapy three months ago. Right? So why would a person that has undergone therapy for cancer have arm swelling, right? This person has lymphedema, right? This person has lymphedema, right? This person has lymphedema. Now, what is the biggest risk factor for lymphedema? This is actually like if a person has had radiation or surgery around the lymph node chain, that is the biggest risk factor, right, for lymphedema. But the biggest risk factor in developing countries is actually filariasis, filariasis. Remember, filariasis is caused by the bulb, Wuchereria, Wuchereria bancrofti, Wuchereria bancrofti. Now, how do we treat this? Well, usually we're going to treat this with a compression bandage. Compression bandage, right? And then is there a genetic cause on any exams of, of, uh, of uh, lymphedema? I want you to think about the cystic hygroma in Turner's. That cystic hygroma is an example of a congenital lymphedema, okay? It's an example of a congenital lymphedema, right? And lymphedema, unfortunately, can move on to become lymphangiosarcoma. It can move on to become lymphangiosarcoma. It's a connective tissue malignancy. Okay, so let's go ahead and take people's questions, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so let's begin. So, question... 51, right? So it says, we have a 32-year-old female, no, oops, question 51, we have a 67-year-old female uh, presents with a three-month history of moderate left lower extremity pain. It is a chronic problem. She describes the pain as a tight, full, achy sensation that is worse at the end of the day. Physical exam is notable for ankle-slash-calf edema, right? So she has ankle-slash-calf edema, which subsides with elevation of the involved extremity. It's a chronic problem, right? This person has chronic venous insufficiency, right? This person has chronic venous insufficiency, chronic venous insufficiency, right? So the thing is, remember the pathophase here, because these people, they are, you know, veins have valves, right? Veins normally have valves, right? So if the valves are not working, right? So if you have incompetent valves, then you have a lot of backflow of blood, right? you have a lot of backflow of blood, and that blood will just hang out, right? So usually because of that blood hanging out in the lower extremities, you'll have this thing called stasis dermatitis. You'll have this thing called stasis dermatitis, right? That's pretty much from hemosiderin that has collected, right, in their lower extremities. Now, if these people have an ulcer, well, where will the ulcer be? It's very high yield to know that the ulcers are going to be painless, Right? They're going to be above or around the medial malleolus. 
right? They'll be above or around the medial malleolus. Now, how do we usually diagnose this? Well, typically, we're going to do a duplex ultrasound of the lower extremities in these people. So we're going to do a duplex ultrasound of the lower extremities, right? We'll do a duplex ultrasound of the lower extremities. And then how are we going to treat these people? Well, typically, we're going to treat these people with compression socks, right? We're going to treat these people with compression socks, right? We're going to treat these people with compression socks, right? And the thing is, sometimes, you know, these people have, you know, varicose veins as a result. If you want to treat varicose veins, right? If you want to treat varicose veins, you can do things like sclerotherapy, right? You can do things like sclerotherapy. You can also do things like uh, radiofrequency ablation. That's also perfectly acceptable on MDM exams. Right? So you can do sclerotherapy, or you can do radiofrequency ablation. Remember, when people have varicose veins, it's usually from the saphenous vein. Most cases of varicose veins are from the saphenous vein. Now, question 52 is something that you absolutely want to make sure you understand. These compression syndromes have made a very big debut on MBM exams. Like it's like they're like the hottest kids in town these days on MBM exams. You absolutely need to know. I promise you, if you don't know this stuff, you're going to be putting yourself in a very tough situation on your exam. So let's do the first one. It says left lower extremity thrombosis in an individual with no hypercoagulable risk factors, right? This one, whenever they write it, they give you a person that has a thrombosis that should never have gotten it in the first place, right? Whenever, and they will tell you, oh, family history is negative for factor five lighting. They'll tell you like all those things, right? If you see this, and it's going to be in the left lower extremities, not in the right lower extremities, left lower extremities. If you see this, I want you to think of something called May-Thurner syndrome. May-Thurner syndrome. May-Thurner syndrome, right? May-Thurner syndrome. So what's the pathophysiology here? The thing is, remember, between veins and arteries, veins are compressible. Arteries are not. I'll say that again. Veins are compressible. Arteries are not. So the thing is, in some people, the right common iliac artery, the right common iliac artery, right, it undergoes hypertrophy and compresses those people's left common iliac vein. Left common iliac vein, right? So if you compress that vein, then you will essentially notice that, wow, okay, this vein, you're beginning to have stasis of blood. When you have that blood stasis, right? You're going to have thrombosis. Again, these people who have zero risk factors will be super healthy on the exam. You have left lower extremity thrombosis. Now, the next one says, you have a patient that has a two-month history of severe left hand, left clavicle, and left neck pain, right? And this is a 23-year-old male. He also reports tingling in all five digits of the involved extremity. And then we notice that he has a purplish discoloration <coughs> of the left hand, right? Of the left hand, right? This person, especially when you're seeing all these neuropathies, I want you to think of thoracic outlet syndrome. Yeah. This person has thoracic outlet syndrome, right? This person has thoracic outlet syndrome. Remember, people can get thoracic outlet syndrome for many reasons. They can get it from a Pankos tumor, right? They can get it from a cervical rib. Remember, your ribs are supposed to come off your, your thoracic vertebra, not your cervical vertebra, right? So those things can compress the brachial plexus, they can compress veins and cause problems. Okay, 
Maybe let me raise this um, so we can see the rest of the question. Da, 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 da. So clear that. Okay. Now the next one says, sudden onset severe pain, erythema, and swelling of the right arm in a 23-year-old male guitarist who has recently had to increase practice time for an upcoming reality TV show. So the way you would see this one on an exam is a person that has been that is aggressively using the upper extremities, right? This person will aggressively be using their upper extremities, right? So it can be like a person that is a jackhammer operator, right? It can be a person that is a jackhammer operator, right? Basically, a person or even a weightlifter. Yes. A weightlifter, right? Or again, a person that uses musical instruments where they use their upper extremities a lot. The thing is, think about it, right? If you go to the gym, like a lot, right? If you go to the gym, if you go to the gym a lot, right? And you work out, work out, work out, work out. Oh, yeah, you get those big fat muscles, big fat muscles, right? Those big fat muscles, guess what? Blood vessels run through them, right? And these are compressible. If you compress those veins with your also big fat muscles, right? You see that you can get in trouble. That's why many times people that are bodybuilders, weightlifters, actually get tend to get this venous thromboembolic diseases because their big fat muscles are literally causing big fat compressions oh of their veins, right? If you see something like this, this is something called Paget Schroeder disease. Paget Schroeder disease. Essentially, in these people, the thing that's happening is that they are causing thrombosis of the axillary or the subclavian veins. Again, just by that compression, it creates blood spaces. Next one says, two-week history of hematuria and left testicular pain in a 23-year-old male who recently lost 45 pounds uh -oh, on a reality TV show. Physical exam is notable for a bag of warm sensation in his left testicle, right? So what kind of compression syndrome is this, right? So let's talk about the pathophysiology. The right? renal artery, renal So the thing is, let me draw a normal situation first. So let's draw the normal, right? Again, this is something I may not be able to explain again. So please just pay attention, right? So this is the aorta, right? And coming off of the aorta, is the superior mesenteric artery, right? Now, between that aorta and superior mesenteric artery, a vein goes through, is the left renal vein, right? So let's just draw a circle there for the left renal vein. The left renal vein goes through like so. Now, the thing is, there is actually a fat part. There is a ton of fat that surrounds the left renal vein. Kind of creates like a cushion, right? It creates like a cushion. Or the left renal vein, right? Kind of creates like a cushion for the left renal vein. So think about it. If you lose a ton of weight, what do you think is going to happen to that fat part? That fat part is going to go bye bye, right? And if you have no fat part, then your yoder and your SME, that angle will decrease and you start squishing on the left renal vein. If you squish on the left renal vein, everything that drains into it will begin to have, will not drain properly, right? That's why this person has a varicose cell. They have a left-sided varicose cell, right? They have a left side because remember the left testicular vein drains into the left renal vein, right? So if you see this, right, this person has something we call nutcracker syndrome, 
This person has nutcracker syndrome. This person has nutcracker syndrome. Now, the next one says, sudden onset severe right upper quadrant pain and jaundice in a 22-year-old male with a history of chronic hematuria. We talked about this yesterday, right? Abdominal exam is notable for a fluid wave, right? Obtained labs reveal pancytopenia on the bicarb of 13. Right? This is a young guy, history of chronic hematuria. This guy has Bud Chiari syndrome, right? Bud Chiari syndrome, right? From PNH. Remember, PNH is associated with Bud Chiari syndrome. <clears throat> and remember, in Bud Chiari syndrome, you have hepatic vein thrombosis. You have hepatic vein thrombosis. You have hepatic vein thrombosis. Okay. Now the next one says sudden onset flank and lower abdominal, lower back pain. We've talked about this as well. In a 33-year-old male with a history of chronic proteinuria and generalized edema. Remember, whenever you have nephrotic syndrome, you're going to pee out many proteins in your urine, including antithrombin 3. So people that have nephrotic syndrome, they have an acquired antithrombin 3 deficiency. Acquired antithrombin 3 deficiency, right? So basically, this person has renal vein thrombosis, right? And remember, renal vein thrombosis has the strongest association with membranous nephropathy. It has a strong association with membranous nephropathy. has a strong association with membranous nephropathy. Now, next one says, sudden onset severe abdominal pain in a patient that was recently discharged from the hospital after a bout of acute pancreatitis. Physical exam is notable for fullness in the left upper quadrant. Okay, His platelet count is 55,000. Right, This one is just an association you need to know. Whenever you see a person having acute pancreatitis and they have a thrombotic episode, I want you to think of splenic vein thrombosis. Splenic vein thrombosis has a very strong association with a recent episode of acute pancreatitis. Now, question 53 says, or dinophagia and grid-like symptoms that have not improved with three six-week courses of esomeprazole, right? And so the GOPH monitoring is unremarkable, right? So you've done the gold standard test, is unremarkable. They love to test this. This will be a person, you've checked them for GERD to the end, they haven't improved, right? And then you've tried all the PPIs in the world, they haven't improved. If you see this, I want you to think of something called eosinophilic esophagitis. Eosinophilic esophagitis. If you actually biopsy those people's esophageal mucosa, you'll see a lot of eosinophils, right? So this person has eosinophilic esophagitis. And how do we treat this stuff? We actually treat it with inhaled or oral steroids. You can use inhaled or oral steroids. Now question 54 says, blood pressure of 190 over 120 and severe chest pain relating to the scapula, right? In a 55-year-old male, right? So this guy is hemodynamically unstable, right? Chest pain relating to the scapula, right? With a very high blood pressure. This person has aortic dissection. Right? This person has aortic dissection. Right here. Aortic dissection, right? So what's your next best step in diagnosis? Because this person is hemodynamically unstable, right? Again, this is an application of something we discussed yesterday. You're going to do a TEE. Right? It's going to be done by anesthesia in your preneural. Now, what is the biggest risk factor for aortic dissection? It's going to be hypertension. Hypertension is the biggest risk factor for aortic dissection. Right? 
So how do we treat it? Again, we're going to start with a beta blocker. Right? And then again, the TEE will tell us if we're dealing with an ascending, you know, for that, we'll have to dig into surgery in addition to the beta blocker, right? Or we just do a beta blocker, just medical management if it's a type B dissection. Again, we've talked about this ad nauseum yesterday, right? So what's your next best step in management? Again, you're going to give a beta blocker. Talked about that already. Now, what if you see a new diastolic murmur, right? You notice that person that's going through an aortic dissection, they have a diastolic murmur. I want you to think of aortic regurg. Aortic regurg is an acute complication of aortic dissection. I'll say that again. Aortic regurg is an acute complication of aortic dissection. Now, what are some other risk factors for aortic dissection? Some other risk factors for aortic dissection, right? are going to be things like Marfan's, right? Marfan's, Erlas Danlos, Erlas Danlos, right? Remember, people that have ter tertiary syphilis also have a high risk of aortic dissection, right? People that have tertiary syphilis and also people that have Turner syndrome. You also have a high risk of aortic dissection. Now, what is the most common extra cardiac complication of aortic dissection? Classic immunity question. What is the most common extra cardiac complication? It's going to be acute kidney injury. <coughs> right? Because again, you're literally not perfusing the afferent arterial. Now, what's the buzzword pathophase behind aortic dissection? Again, I want you to remember this term cystic medial necrosis. Cystic medial necrosis. Remember, it's the media of the blood vessel. That stops working well. That's why you're able to have that dissection from the intima, right? So cystic medial necrosis, cystic medial degeneration. And if you see a person having an MI in association with an aortic dissection, this, you don't find it in many resources, but this is floridly high yield to know. They very likely have an RCA infarct. It's just something about the way the aorta is oriented. When people have dissections, you really close off the right coronary sinus, right? So those people don't get blood into their coronary arteries. So you see a person having an MI, you love to test this on emergency medicine and surgery shelves. You see a person, they're having aortic dissection, they have an MI. It's going to be an RCA infarct, right? Now, question 55, right? Question 55. We see sudden onset severe left back, so sudden onset severe back slash left lung pain in a 69-year-old male with a barely perceptible supraumbilical mass, right? So we're seeing this guy, sudden onset, it's an acute problem, right? An acute problem, old guy, maybe he has smoked for a long time and he has back pain. If you see that, I want you to think about a triple A, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, right? That has ruptured, right? A ruptured triple A. So what's going to be your next best step in diagnosis? You're actually going to go ahead and get an abdominal ultrasound. Abdominal ultrasound is very sensitive and specific for this stuff, right? And then your next best step in management, you're going to take them to surgery. You're going to take them to, to surgery, right? Now, what is the biggest risk factor for a AAA? This is going to be smoking, right? Smoking is the biggest risk factor for a AAA. I'll say that again. Smoking is the biggest risk factor for a AAA. Now, how do we treat these people? Again, we're going to take them to surgery. <laughs> surgery is the treatment strategy, right? Now, what if the person becomes paraplegic? Again, today... I'm just trying to use today to integrate some things as well that we learned yesterday, right? So remember, we said that if you're fixing a triple A, right, you can injure an artery called the artery of Adamkowitz, or you can hypoperfuse it, the artery of Adamkowitz, right? And the artery of Adamkowitz supplies the anterior spinal artery, 
So these people can have anterior spinal artery syndrome, right? So all their spinal cord tracts are gone with the exception of the dorsal columns. Every other thing will not work. That's why the person is paraplegic. Now, next question here says, post-treatment positive FOBT and a hemoglobin of 8 with an MCV of 70. So we see this person, they seem to have a microcytic anemia, right? So that means they are probably bleeding chronically into their GI tract, right? This is something called an aortoenteric fistula, right? They form the fistula between the excluded aneurysm, right? Between the excluded aneurysm, right? And um, and their GI tracts. Okay, now what are the screening guidelines? Again, remember, if you're a guy and you're over the age of 65, right, and you've smoked, if you're a guy over the age of 65 and you've smoked, right, you've ever smoked, you deserve a screening ultrasound, right? And if that screening ultrasound shows an aneurysm greater than five and a half centimeters, right? Those people, you need to take them to surgery. You need to fix, you need to fix, uh, you need to fix, fix that problem. Now, what is the most common treatment complication with endovascular repair, right? What is the most common treatment location with endovascular repair, right? That's where you have the concept of an endoleak on exams, right? That's where you have the concept of, of an endoleak on exams. So what do I mean by an endoleak? Basically, let's say this is the aneurysm, right? And then you exclude said aneurysm, right? You put a stent through it, right? If a person were to get IV contrast, the IV contrast is only supposed to flow here, right? You're not supposed to find IV contrast getting into the aneurysm, getting into the aneurysm. If IV contrast is getting into the aneurysm, that means that aneurysm is porous, or you didn't exclude the aneurysm properly. That's what's called an endoleak, right? That's what's called an endoleak, right? An endoleak is not going to cause iron deficiency in your aneurysm, right? That's how you differentiate an endoleak, right, from an aortoenteric fistula. Now, what is the most common location of a triple leg? Remember, it's going to be in the infrarenal aorta, right? So, below the renal arteries. Below the renal arteries, right? Because the thing is, the walls of the aorta below the renal arteries are more susceptible to ischemia. Because the thing is, most large arteries have this thing called visa visorum. Visa visorum. Visa visorum. They are blood vessels that literally supply the walls of the aorta. I'll say that again. They are blood vessels that supply the walls of the aorta. Another large blood vessel, right? So below the renal arteries, the abdominal aorta actually does not have visa visorum. So that like backstop, that extra blood supply is not there, right? So those people have a high risk. That's why below the renal arteries, that's where you usually have um, um, triple A's. Now, what is the imaging finding in acute circumstances? These are imaging finding in multiple to put exams. So the thing is, if you think about it, if you see the vertebral bodies, in front of the vertebral bodies, that's where we have the aorta, right? If a person's aorta explodes, right? That aorta is literally going to drape over these vertebral bodies, right? And remember, people that have triple A's, right? They usually have atherosclerotic disease. So they have all these calcifications in the walls of the aorta, right? So if they tell you that, oh, they get imaging and they see calcifications, calcifications anterior to the vertebral bodies. So calcifications anterior 
a person you see they have this presentation and they have calcifications in front anterior to the vertebral bodies that's something called the draped aorter sign right that's something called the draped aorter sign on mbme exams it goes along with a person that likely has a ruptured triple a right it goes with a person that likely has a ruptured triple a person that likely has a ruptured triple a okay the draped aorter sign okay so let's keep going Okay, so question 56, right? So question 56, it says, rising creatinine two days after a patient with a history of AFib presented with acute onset severe leg pain, right? That was treated with catheter embolectomy, right? So you tried to remove that embolus, right? You tried to remove that embolus, you tried to remove that embolus. So why would those people's creatinine then suddenly start rising, right? Oh, the person's creatinine suddenly start rising. The thing is, these people have some kind of thrombosis, right? They have some kind of thrombosis, potentially, of the renal artery, right? And the thing that happened is, as we're treating this embolus, we dislodged some of it, right? So that's the pathophysiology. You dislodge some of the embolus, and some of that embolus may have gone and occluded, right? They have gone and occluded the person's renal artery, right? So you may have gone and occluded the person's renal artery. So some of that, that emboli may have gone and again occluded the renal artery. Now, question 57. Treatment of bleeding associated with end-stage renal disease versus end-stage liver disease. The thing is, when a person has end-stage renal disease, they're going to have uremia, right? The thing is, whenever you have uremia, your platelets don't work really well. They are like not able to degranulate well at all, right? So people that have problems with renal failure, right? Their platelets don't work well. So their primary hemostasis is bad. The primary hemostasis is bad. So how do we fix a coagulopathy in a person that has institutional disease? We're going to give them something that participates in primary hemostasis like desmopressin. Desmopressin is the drug of choice for treating coagulopathy in people that have end-stage renal disease. Remember, desmopressin, right, increases your production of von Willebrand factor. Okay, now, end-stage liver disease. In end-stage liver disease, the reason you have a coagulopathy is you have no clotting factors, right? So these people have a problem with what? With secondary hemostasis. So how do we treat this? We're going to give FFP. FFP is how you fix the coagulopathy associated with a person that has end-stage liver disease. Again, makes perfect sense if you understand the pathophase. Now, question 15 says we have a two-year history of recurrent intermittent fevers and pleuritic chest pain in, again, look at this Middle Eastern, again, Libyan, Turkish, Greek, or Mediterranean, again, ancestry, right? So, Libyan, Turkish, Greek, uh, immigrant, right? So, you see this. And then they tell you that his only home medication is as needed ibuprofen for pain, right? So this person's only home medication is as needed ibuprofen for pain, right? These episodes last for about a week and resolve without treatment, right? They come for a while, resolve without treatment. Similar episodes have been shown to occur in other family members. Physical exam and imaging are all within normal limits. Whenever you see a person, they seem to have like this pain, 
and these fevers that keep coming, 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 and they have Mediterranean ancestry, I want you to think of something called familial Mediterranean fever. Familial Mediterranean fever. Familial Mediterranean fever. Right? Familial Mediterranean fever. Now, the genetics, the gene mutation that actually causes this is from an MEFV gene mutation, right? An MEFV gene mutation, right? And because these people are always in an inflammatory state, right? Their ESR and CRP tends to be markedly elevated, right? Tends to be markedly elevated. Now, why would they get a creatinine of three, right? And proteinuria after many years? Well, the thing is, if you think about it, these people, they have a chronic, inf like, chronic inflammation, chronic inflammation, chronic inflammation. When you have chronic inflammation, over time, you'll build up this protein called serum amyloid A. We'll talk about this some more later, right? That serum amyloid A can literally form amyloid, right? And the most common organ that's involved in, that is destroyed by amyloid, right, is the kidneys. So those people can go into renal failure. They can go into renal failure. Now, how do we treat familiar Mediterranean fever? We're going to treat these people with colchicine. Colchicine is the first-line agent for treating familial Mediterranean fever. Now, question 59 says, red-hot painful ears with chronic strider. Right? Red-hot painful ears with chronic strider. Again, this patient often has episodes of bilateral parasternal chest pain. He is noted to have a saddle nose deformity. Again, I want to just, again, integrate some things here. So if you notice here, again, strider, airway, cartilage, right? Oh, parasternal pain. Remember your coastal cartilage, right? Saddle nose deformity, your nose is primarily cartilage, right? So what's the diagnosis here? Again, this is relapsing. This person has relapsing polychondritis. Relapsing polychondritis, right? So how do we make the how do we diagnose this? You actually diagnose this by performing a cartilage biopsy. Right? A cartilage biopsy, right? And then how do we treat this? Well, you can treat this with NSAIDs. Right? You can treat this with NSAIDs. You can treat this with colchicine. You can also use Dapso. These are all first-line agents for relapsing polychondritis. Any of these things. Second line is going to be steroids. Second line is going to be steroids. Right? Second line is going to be steroids. Okay? Now, let's deal with some toxic drums in question 60. What is the diagnosis for the following patient permutations? First one says, this person is tachycardic, hypertensive, and they have bilateral pupillary mitriasis, right? This is cocaine intoxication, right? This is cocaine intoxication, right? And how do we treat cocaine intoxication? Well, we're going to try to lower their blood pressure, right? We're going to try to lower their blood pressure. Many times, we're going to give benzos. Many times, you're going to give benzos, right? Benzodiazepines. But another thing you may see on exams is fentolamine. Fentolamine is an alpha-1 blocker that can be used to treat cocaine intoxication, right? It's an alpha-1 blocker. Now, look at the next one. It's kind of similar. They have tachycardia, hypertension, mitriasis. But look at the key thing. These people have prominent hallucinations. These people have what? Prominent hallucinations. This is methamphetamine intoxication. Methamphetamine methamphetamine intoxication, right? So these people have methamphetamine intoxication. 
Okay. Next one says bradycardia, profuse diarrhea and rhinorrhea, bilateral pupillary meiosis in a farmer, right? So what does this person have? This is organophosphate poisoning, right? You see they have this cholinergic toxicity. You see their heart rate is low, right? Because they have decreased speed of conduction through the AV node, right? So their heart rate is low, they are leaky from everywhere, right? So they have a cholinergic toxicity. So how do we treat these people? Remember, you're going to give them atropine first. So you're going to give atropine. And then after giving atropine, you're going to give pralidoxine, right? You're going to give atropine first to block those muscarinic receptors. And then after that, you're going to give pralidoxine. Next one, right? You see this person has a fever. They're tachycardic. They're tachypnic. And they have bilateral mydriasis. You see this person, this person is hot. This person is hot. This is an anticholinergic toxidrome. An anticholinergic toxidrome. And how do you fix an anticholinergic toxidrome? Right? You're going to fix it with physostigmine. Physostigmine. You're going to fix it with physostigmine. Right? Because physostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Right? I'll say that again. Physostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Right? So if you inhibit acetylcholinesterase, your acetylcholine levels will go up and you will not compete those anticholinergic things. Now look at this next one. This person has fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, mydriasis. But look at this. They have a leukocytosis and diffuse muscle rigidity, right? Diffuse muscle rigidity. This can either be neuroleptic malignant syndrome if they took a neuroleptic or malignant hyperthermia, right? If they just got anesthesia. And remember, regardless, we're going to treat this with Dantrolin, right? We're going to treat this with Dantrolin. We're going to treat it with Dantrolin, right? It prevents you from releasing calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, right? So it's a calcium channel blocker. So you reduce that muscle contraction so their symptoms will, will go away. Now, the next one says, this person is bradycardic. This person's respiratory is really low. This person has pinpoint pupils, bilateral meiosis, right? This is opioid overdose, right? This person has opioid overdose, right? Opioid overdose. And remember, we're going to treat this with naloxone, right? We're going to treat it with naloxone. Now, the next one, right? See, this person's heart rate is extremely low. Blood pressure is extremely low as well, right? And this is a 33-year-old female on chronic therapy for variant angina, right? For variant angina, right? This person has calcium channel blocker overdose, right? This person has calcium channel blocker overdose, so how do we treat calcium channel blocker overdose? Well, the first thing you're supposed to give these people is calcium. You're going to give them calcium, right? You can give them calcium gluconate, calcium chloride, all those things are absolutely fine, right? And many times you'll also add atropine to that. So give them calcium first, and then you also add atropine. Now, question 61 says, we have a 22-year-old male who was found unconscious by his family in January, right? That's a cold time of the year. His neighbor saw him grilling indoors. That's probably not the smartest idea in the world, right? Grilling indoors as temperatures were sub-zero at the time. Well, maybe not. Don't grill at all, right? So what's the diagnosis here, right? This is carbon monoxide poison. This is carbon monoxide poison. So how do you diagnose this? Remember, you're going to diagnose this by checking the person's carboxy hemoglobin levels, right? The person's carboxy hemoglobin levels, it will be increased. They'll have increased carboxyhemoglobin levels, right? They'll have increased carboxyhemoglobin levels. Now, 
on brain imaging, what are you going to find? Well, the thing is, if you get a CT or an MRI of the brain, or usually you're going to do this for CT, you're going to find bilateral globus pallidus hyperintensities. Bilateral globus pallidus hyperintensities. And then you'll be like, divine, what? I promise you this stuff is like insanely high yield to know for exams. When people see it, they almost always, as a rule, get it wrong, right? I remember the first time I saw this, I happened to, like, you know, read this from a book as I was, you know, preparing for my neuroshop, right? I was like, yeah, that stuff is stupid. You're never going to test this stuff. But again, for me, I try to pay attention to those things, right? And then I was taking an exam that was important, and it happens to show up. I was like, interesting. And then after that, I now started getting more and more reports of how important this was. Please, please, please make sure you know this thing. Okay. So how do we treat this? Well, remember, we're going to treat this, right, with hyperbaric oxygen, right? Now, what is the most likely presenting symptom on MBMEs? The most likely presenting symptom is headache. Headache. People that have carbon monoxide poisoning almost always present with headache on MBME exams, right? They almost always present with headache on MBME exams. Okay. So, I'm going to erase this so we can keep going. Okay. So, question 62, right? Question 62 says... Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea with a creatinine of three, four days after starting chemotherapy for Burkitt's lymphoma, right? Starting chemotherapy chemotherapy for, for Burkitt's lymphoma. So we see this person's kidneys are getting shut down, right? After they took something that's killing a lot of cells, right? It's going to be tumor lysis syndrome, right? Tumor lysis syndrome. Tumor lysis syndrome, Right? So, how could you have prevented this? So, how can you treat this? Well, you can hydrate. Give a ton of normal saline, right? But another thing you can also do on exams, right, is to have given a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, right? Because that tumor lysis syndrome, you're basically forming a lot of uh, uric acid, right? You form a lot of uric acid. That's why these people are getting in trouble, right? So, a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, like allopurinol, right? Alternatively, you can also give a uricase analog, right? So remember, uricase is an enzyme that converts uric acid, which is insoluble, to allantoin, or allantoin, which is water-soluble. Uricase makes this conversion. So there are some very expensive drugs that are uricase analogs. These are drugs like piglotikase, Piglotikase or rasborikase. Rasborikase. So piglotikase or rasborikase, right? Now, what is the most likely electrolyte abnormality in these people? The big one I want you to remember is, because think about it. <coughs> the sodium potassium ATP is pump. It brings three sodiums out of cells and puts two potassiums into cells. So there's a lot of potassium inside your cells, right? I'll say that again. There's a lot of potassium inside your cells, right? So, Whenever you have a lot of cells exploding, right? You're going to release a lot of potassium into the surroundings, right? So 
these people have a high risk of hyperkidemia. That's why many times you put them on cardiac car, on some kind of cardiac monitoring. Now question 63. A 19-year-old with a history of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma on chemotherapy is brought to the ED with a three-day history of high fevers and flu-like symptoms. His temperature is 102. A chest, abdominal, and pelvic CT series is unremarkable. His absolute neutrophil count is 300, right? So we see this person, they have febrile neutropenia, right? But again, we are seeing it in a different light today. They have febrile neutropenia. Again, just from being on, on chemo, right? Now, your next best step in management, as we've discussed extensively, is to go ahead and perform blood cultures, right? Oh, sorry, diagnosis is blood cultures. But management, you want to give them, so you're going to get a blood culture first. And then after that, you're going to give an anti-pseudomonal penicillin. You're going to give an anti-pseudomonal penicillin, an anti-pseudomonal penicillin, right? Now, how could you have prevented this from happening? Well, you could have given uh, GCSF or a GMCSF analog, right? So that they don't become neutropenic. So what are some drugs that can accomplish these goals, right? These are going to be things like filbrastin, right? Or sagramostin. Filbrastin, they all end in steam. They are stimulators, right? So filbrastin or sagramostin, right? Filbrastin or sagramostin. Now, the next question here says, despite a six-day course of treatment, the patient remains febrile. What is the next best step in management? What is the next best step in management? The thing you want to do is, they make these questions very non-specific. It's almost like a guideline kind of question. If you notice that a person, giving them like broad-spectrum antibiotics, they're not getting better. And they want you to add something else. I want you to add voriconazole. Right? This is a classic presentation of invasive aspergillosis in neutropenic patients, right? You notice that, man, I've treated this person with broad spectrum stuff, you're not getting better. Add voriconazole. Although, again, if you don't see voriconazole, you can use amphotericin B instead, right? And again, remember when people have invasive aspergillosis like that, we talked about this yesterday, you're going to see the halo sign, right? You're going to see the halo sign, right? Targeted appearance surrounding ground glass, right? On a CT scan of the chest. Now, what if a person is neutropenic and they have right lower quadrant pain? You're like, huh, you don't have appendicitis? Or you, you will notice that, oh, appendicitis is not an answer choice. If you see that, I want you to think of typhlitis. Typhlitis. This is an example of necrotizing enterocolitis in adults. Necrotizing enterocolitis in adults, right? Necrotizing enterocolitis in adults. Now, question 64. A 55-year-old female with a history of breast cancer in remission presents with a two-week history of left-sided facial droop and left-sided lower extremity weakness. Brain imaging is consistent with multiple ring-enhancing lesions, right? So we see this person, they have a history of cancer, or if you see this, this person has brain mass. This person has brain units, right? Now, what's going to be your next best step in management? You're going to give IV steroids again so this person does not herniate, right? Because again, those meds with all the edema around the tumor, it can cause herniation, 
right? Now, what's your preferred brain imaging for men? It's going to be an MRI of the brain, right? You're going to get a brain MRI. Again, usually, you're going to get that with IV contrast, right? Now, what's the long-term management here? What's the thing you're supposed to do long-term for these people? Right. Well, you're going to do whole brain radiation. There's other things you do, but that is well beyond the scope of the USMLE exams, right? So you're going to perform whole brain radiation in these people. Now, question 65 says the chronic kidney disease patient, right? So the CKD patient. So let's talk about things that apply to CKD patients on MBME exams, right? Let's talk about CKD patients in relation to MBME exams. So he says, treatment of hypertension in an African-American CKD patient with proteinuria, right? With African-Americans, we try to avoid ACE inhibitors in them. But once you have renal dysfunction or you have a history of diabetes, the drug of choice for hypertension is an ACE inhibitor, right? An ACE inhibitor on ARB, right? ACE inhibitor on ARB, right? Now, what's our blood pressure target for hypertension in chronic kidney disease? Our target is actually for your blood pressure to be less than 130 over 80, right? We want your blood pressure to be less than 130 over 80. Now, why would a person that has chronic kidney disease have a hemoglobin of 8, right, and have an MCV of 80? Why should they have that normocytic anemia? Well, I hope you're saying that, oh, divine, they have an EPO deficiency. Because EPO is made in your kidneys, right? So they have an EPO deficiency. Now, the next one says, three-day history of shortness of breath with JVD. An AV fistula was placed a week prior, given the patient's declining renal status. So if you see a person, they're beginning to have heart failure symptoms, right? And an AV fistula was just placed. Think of those people having high output heart failure. Think of those people having high output heart failure. Because the thing is, an AV fistula is when you have a direct connection between an artery and a vein. You have a direct connection between an artery and a vein, right? So those capillaries are no longer there. So literally... Just as quickly as blood is leaving the heart, it's coming back to the heart. Just as quickly as blood is leaving the heart, it's coming back to the heart. Just as quickly as blood is leaving the heart, it's coming back to the heart, right? So the thing is, those people, they have a very marked increase in preload. Again, if you keep sending all that preload, sending all that preload, the heart is a muscle. After a while, the heart will be like, I can't take this anymore, right? And then the person's heart will fail, right? That's high output heart failure. Next one here says, Hirsutism and dental anomalies after a renal transplant, right? So if a person gets a kidney transplant and you see hirsutism, right? And the dental anomaly is usually gingival hyperplasia. Gingival hyperplasia. Gingival hyperplasia. If you see this, I want you to think of cyclosporine toxicity. Cyclosporine toxicity. We love to test this on step two, see can step three. Now, what is the most likely malignant complication of renal transplantation? What is the most likely malignant complication of renal transplantation? It's actually going to be squamous cell cancer of the skin. Again, just because of that immunosuppression that the person has, right? Predisposes them to getting malignancies. That's very high yield to know for exams. Now, let's do this last question and then I'll take people's questions and we'll, we'll take a break. Now, we have a 45-year-old female with a history of Down syndrome complicated by mild Alzheimer's, is brought to the hospital with a two-hour history of severe headache. She describes it as the worst headache of her life. 
Emergent non-contrast CTs can obtain this consistent with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? So why did this person that has a history of Alzheimer's get a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Remember, they have something called amyloid angiopathy, right? Because many people that have um, downs, right, they form a lot of amyloid in their brain. So that amyloid can deposit in their blood vessels, weaken those walls, and then those vessels explode easily, right? Now, this person has Alzheimer's at 45, right? Because again, they have three copies of the amyloid precursor protein, right? They have three copies of the amyloid precursor protein, right? Remember, that's found on chromosome 21, right? That's found on chromosome 21. So they have three chromosome 21, trisomy 21. That's why they got it in trouble. Okay, so let me just take people's questions and then we'll just uh, take our break. Mm -hmm.